Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux. Hope you're doing very well. It's Sunday, October the 31st. Almost time for Bootcake Scary Time Halloween. Uh, it's um, 2 p.m. in the afternoon, Eastern Standard Time, time for the regular Sunday show. So, uh, I've been requests. Uh, people like the parenting updates. So, I thought I would give you one. My daughter is a couple of months shy of being three years old. And I must say <clears throat> that we have entered into, I've entered into, I mean, it's been really over the last six or eight months, an incredibly magical time in parenting. Um, the flights of fancy, the imagination, uh, the language skills are incredible. Um, I was like two days ago, I sort of, I woke her up from a nap and we just sort of fell to chatting and we were, we were discussing everywhere that we could fly if we had giant butterfly wings and what we would do, uh, where we flew. So we were going to fly to SeaWorld, we were going to fly to the pet store and to the donut store, we were going to fly right through the chocolate fountain, uh, at a, a restaurant near here. And it was, we feel like half an hour, we were talking about all the places we would, fly and all of the things we would do and uh it's just fantastic i think her level of compassion is just developing beautifully uh or rather is developing naturally without interference she likes the movie shrek where the dragon the big dragon breathes fire and she says that um her approach to problem solving the fire breathing dragon is as follows that the thing you do and this may be useful for you in general the thing you do with a fire breathing dragon is you walk up to it you give it a pat and a big hug and you play with it so that it switches from breathing fire to breathing rainbows. And really, she's just described the entire business plan of Free Domain Radio. So I really commend her not only for her empathy, but for her psychic abilities to divine uh, philosophy plans in a whole. So rainbow breathing dragons is the way uh, forward. And hopefully somebody can put that on uh, on a logo and we can get that uh, tattoos, bumper stickers, uh, uh, what have you. Um. She was, uh, she was great fun. I told this story at Libertopia. I'll tell it again. She, she was great fun at Libertopia. Uh, I was trying to explain to her what I do because she's sort of having some idea that I, I do something other than be a dad. And, you know, it's hard to explain. I, what do I do? I, I, I yell at people on the internet for money. I, <laughs> how do you explain that? So she, and whenever I try to explain it, she gives this funny face like, that's not a real job. Well, I mean, so does my wife. So I can't really complain about that. But uh, I so I sort of took her up on the stage. What a stage it was at Libertopia. I mean, this place is incredible. You had Aretha Franklin there. Uh, you've had um, Sheryl Crow has played there. Aerosmith has played there. Um, Ringo Starr. Well, but, I mean, it's quite a stage. And Tony Bennett. Uh, so the sound system is incredible. And um, so I took her up. I was on the stage and I said, well, I talk to people and I try to give them ideas that will make them even happier. And that's pretty abstract. So she was sort of in my arms while I was explaining to her while we were looking out from the stage. I said, this is what I do. I try to make people happier by, by telling them, uh, giving them ideas. And she said, show me. <laughs> it's a challenge, right? So, so I took her down and uh, I put her in the, um, the front row, uh, in a seat. And then I ran back up on the stage and I took my microphone and I talked into it. And I said, uh, you can, uh, you can hear me. She nodded. I said, uh, are you happy? She said, no, I'm sad. Uh, because, right? So I've got to make her happier. She said, I'm sad. And so, uh, I said, uh, so here's, here's how daddy's going to help make you happier. And so how, how do you be happy? You get a nice big hug from daddy. I jumped off the stage and uh, I gave her a big hug. And she's like, okay, okay, my turn. So we got, there was a little um, microphone there. You know, the ones that go into the base of the drum kit. There's a little microphone there. So I set her up with a tiny little microphone. <laughs> so cute. Tiny little microphone stand. She's there. And she's booming away. And uh, so I run down to the, the front uh, of the stage and I sit there. And uh, she says, Dad, dad, are you happy? I said, no, Isabella, I'm sad. I'm sad. She said, can I make you happy? I said, you can make me happy, please. And she said, dada, dada, here's how to be happy. 
And she, she just scrunched up her face and stuck out her tongue like this. <laughs> and, you know, it may sound crazy, but if you try it, it's really hard to be unhappy if you're scrunching up your face and sticking out your tongue like that. So anyway, I wanted to mention that. Um, I also wanted to mention, uh, people have asked me because this is sort of the quote, terrible twos. And uh, what do I do when Isabella says no a lot? And she does. But for me, the important question with regards to that is to not focus on her, but to first focus on her experience of me. I mean, this is kind of tricky, right? So if you, if you're going to look at something that your kid is doing, the first place to look, it's not the only place to look, but the first place to look is to say, what is her experience of me? In other words, I have a relationship with her and I experience her as saying no a lot. But my question, I think a much more important question is to say, does she experience me saying no a lot? Right? Cause that's sort of the basis of empathy. And she does. I mean, she's at that age where I have to say no, you know, 30 or 40 times a day. Uh, she, you know, she wants candy or she wants to run away or she wants to go on the road or actually the road thing is pretty much done. She doesn't go on there anymore, but she just wants to do stuff that, that is not good. Right. So I have to sort of say no and explain it and so on. So, but there's other times where I say no in my head, sort of before I say no out loud, that's not reasonable. Right. I mean, I don't know if it's, maybe it's just me and maybe it's just my own history because I had a pretty uninvolved mom, but when she wants to do stuff, a good deal of the time, I just want to say no. I, mean, I just want to say no. You know, she wants to, uh, it's, you know, maybe half an hour to bedtime and she wants to pull out a bunch of uh, trains and make a track and make a choo-choo train. And I know it's going to be long and involved. It's going to be lots of cleanups. I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, it's it's wet outside and it's windy and she wants to go out and jump in the puddles. No. <laughs> I get all these things. Where I just want to say no a lot. No, it's not quite convenient for daddy. No, I don't want to do this. Uh, uh, no, I don't want to. Go and get all your balloons from the basement and put them up in your crib. Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to, I turned into this like grouchy old guy with short suspenders and a big sign saying, Hey kids, get off my lawn. And so I, I sort of have to really focus on shifting my own parent from the cranky no to the eternal yes. Let's do it. You know, let's do it. Let's go and do this. Let's go and do that. Uh, she wants to swish her hands in the fountain at the mall. Yeah, we can go wash your hands afterwards. Um, and so, you know, she wants to put her hands, there's a, uh, a restaurant with a waterfall coming down glass. She wants to put her hands in there. Sometimes that makes her sleeves all wet. And so you say, no, <laughs> right. But, but what's wrong with her sleeves getting wet? They'll dry. So it's for me, it's a lot of it is shifting away, not from focusing on whether my daughter is saying no, but focusing on the degree to which I'm saying no. And, you know, sure as night follows day, the more I say yes, the more she's likely to say yes. Now. One of the chats, so that's something that, that we're working on that's, that's solving. Her toilet training is going great. Uh, and so all of that's, uh, fantastic. Um, her socializing is great when she plays with friends. She has a blast and wants to go back. So, so that's, I think all of that's progressing just fantastically. The one, I guess, sort of challenge that we're working through at the moment is she goes through phases where she's really friendly to, to people who are strangers, like, you know, waiters or whatever. She goes through a phase where she's really friendly and now she's going through a phase where she's really not very friendly, bordering on rude. Uh, where she'll hide from them, uh, and uh, it, it got to the point. We were at a restaurant the other day, and uh, I was chatting with uh, with two waitresses about a variety of things. And after the waitresses, my my daughter hid under the table. And after the waitresses left, she she wanted me to come down to her level, and so I did. And she she reached up and she she cleaned my mouth. And I said, "What are you doing?" She says, "I'm I'm wiping away you talking to the waitresses." <laughs> She needs to clean it away, clean it away because she's very possessive. So, you know, that's my daddy kind of stuff. So we're just trying to get her used. And of course, occasionally people will sort of pat her on the back or whatever. And she doesn't really like that. 
Um, she's got a very strict sense of personal boundaries, except with, you know, some, some close friends and with, uh, with uh, her mom and I, of course. So we're trying to sort of reorient her to, you know, people are generally nice. They're being friendly. There's no need, no need to be rude. Uh, you don't have to play with them, but you know, it's nicer to be nice, be nicer. And we're sort of explaining why and so on. And those explanations really, they really do work. You know, I strongly, strongly recommend that. And no, it takes time. <laughs> you need to sit down and explain why, why it's important, right? So, you know, if, if, uh, if you wanted to go and play with someone and they just ran away or they hid, how would you feel? Well, I wouldn't feel very good. I would feel sad. And, and as she loves saying this, I would get sadder and sadder and sadder and sadder. And I said, yeah, so if you're not nice to people, it makes them feel a little sad. It's not like the end of their day or anything, but, but it makes them feel a little sad. And for a little bit of effort, you can make them feel quite happy just by saying hi. And, and if they say, how are you? you say, I'm fine. Or how old are you? I'm two and a half or whatever. Um, so those are the kind of things that we're just sort of navigating along a, a little bit, just sort of trying to adjust that course a little bit. And it takes, takes a while for all of these things. Patience and repetition is, is key. Uh, and, uh, so anyway, those, those are things, uh, that are going on as far as parenting goes, but it's, a, it's just a completely fantastic time at the growth at this point. It's like, it's incredible. It's like she's an accordion being pulled apart by two giants. She's stretching out so quick. Uh, it's just amazing. And uh, I think those are the major things that are going on as far as parenting goes. She's, she's had a bunch of colds lately because we've been traveling and she's been meeting a lot of people and so on. So she's had a bunch of colds, but she's great when she's sick. I mean, she gets a little cranky. Um, we do occasionally when she gets stuck in the sort of broken record crying thing, we have to kind of ease her out of that. Uh, and because she can really get stuck there. And I mean, you know, it's, you know, she could stop because if you go somewhere, she's fine. So helping her to ease out of some of that broken record crying thing is going. Watching her develop empathy. Ah, she's going through this really, uh, it's been now for a couple of months now where when she sees something that she likes, she will ask me if I like it. Right. So she'll see, um, you know, a, a poster with some pretty colors on it and she'll say, uh, Dada, do you like those colors? And, you know, if it's not a color I don't like, oh, of course, I'd say yes. But it's really fascinating to me uh, because that's, to me, that's very advanced. Like, so she knows that she has an experience of the uh, poster, say. She knows that I have an experience and she also knows that the two experiences are maybe different and that it's interesting and worthwhile to get my experience of it. That, to me, is a real triangulation of, uh, of empathy, which is uh, just fascinating to, it's just fascinating to watch. Her negotiation skills, I mean, it's just astounding to see how rapidly and how powerfully her negotiation skills, how instinctual negotiating is. This is why the free market is just so humane at a very fundamental level uh, in that it reflects humanity. So the other day, she likes to be carried a lot. And of course, who wouldn't? It's more fun to be up top where you can see in here rather than down below and so on. You can have a nice conversation with people's kneecaps or whatever. So she likes to be carried a lot. But, you know, after a while, 40 pounds, you get tired. Um, so my wife and I were carrying her through the mall the other day and, uh, my wife said, okay, you, you have to walk until we get to the bay. It's the name of a store at the end of the mall corridor. And so after a bit of negotiating, uh, she agreed. And so we're walking through and then like the moment we cross, the moment we cross the line to get into the store, you know, she starts <laughs> trying to climb up her mom and, um, Christina said, oh, it would just, we, we just get to the elevator. And she said, no, no, we're in the store. We're in the bay. Right. And that's, you know, bang, you know, five minutes later, she's perfectly aware of the commitment that was made of where it was supposed to happen. She's waiting for it to happen. And now she's fulfilling that she's expecting or asking for that commitment to be fulfilled. Bang on, like right on. 
And she was doing it. She wasn't sitting there staring at the store waiting for it to come. She was doing all this other stuff running around and that. But she remembered. And she's like, my leverage is you said the bay. We're in the bay. Now you must carry me. And it's like, wow. I mean, that's amazing. That is, that is just astounding. And, um, yeah, so the question, how am I going to explain the police to her? I'm going to say, well, <clears throat> the police were uh, a band, uh, I guess, in the 80s and 90s that I quite liked, but it's not always necessarily great to dye your hair. I think I'm evidence of that. It's fairly clear. Oh, I don't know. We'll figure that out. Um, we'll figure that out. I mean, I'll explain the facts and uh, not the morality or anything like that, because that's something that she has to figure out uh, through conversation as we go forward. But, um, yeah, it's it's just a fantastic time. You know, I just I highly recommend uh, Parenthood if you have the time and the interest in it. It's just an amazing thing. It's giving me a lot of compassion, too, because as I see the the personality phases or, or the developmental stages that Isabella is going through, it's giving me a lot of patience in a sense, love and compassion, because it really helps me realize in the people that I deal with where people have gotten stuck, where they have maybe missed a a move forward in a developmental stage. And for a lot of people, it's it's pretty damn early, sadly enough. And so it's giving me a lot more sort of patience uh, because because the reality is that we kind of look at, and I sort of have to resist this meme in my head, we kind of look at children like they're sort of broken adults, that they need to mature, they need to become like adults, they need to be fixed. Uh, and the reality is that I actually look at adults as broken children. And, um, you know, a little bit of guidance here and there, which may not even be necessary. Maybe she would outgrow this stranger thing without any prompts. But I still think it's worth putting a bit of nudging just so I sort of feel like I'm doing something <laughs> as a parent. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't view children as broken adults that need to be sort of molded into a mature shape. I view adults pretty much as broken children. And as I'm a father for these last couple of years, I really get a strong sense of where people have gotten stuck in their development or where the development was interrupted or even stopped completely or maybe even reversed. That helps me really understand the challenges that people are working with in trying to navigate their way through a negotiation-based semi-mature world. So that's been a very uh, interesting eye-opener for me as well, just seeing how deeply embedded personal problems can be, how early on this can stuff can happen, and in a sense, without a huge amount of work, how there's almost no chance to change it when you get older. So Anyway, that's the update. Uh, I guess we'll turn to the uh, the gorgeous listeners, and uh, thank you for your patience. And remember, you can go to fdrurl.com forward slash donate if you would like to uh, help support this philosophical conversation. We're catching up with you, Khan Academy, in Lessons Delivered. Thank you so much. Up first is Locky Lock. Wow, that is quite a name. Well, thank you. Um... Recently, you uh, were giving an introduction to um, an event, and I think it was uh, Libertopia, but I'm not positive. Um, it was the stage that you were talking about where all these great names have performed. Um, and one of the questions that you received when you were doing the back and forth about how you can defeat the arguments against anarchy um, was, I don't, uh, I don't believe in property rights specifically land, that um, I believe that uh, land is communally owned and um, then somehow it went into the idea of it being socialized through a form of government, which was not, mm. which is not my particular take on it. It is that um, when I was placed onto this continent, um, let's say from an alien, dropped me down here, I was able to walk anywhere I wanted to and then poof, you appear, you're on the, on the continent as well. Um, 
now I can walk everywhere that I want to except for where you are, um, which is, in a sense, a denial of my liberty. But, right. you know, I can't really say anything, you know, against that since I'm also in the same, you know, doing the same with you. Um, however, if I were to uh, take a, a, I don't know, some adobe bricks and uh, wall off an area of that land, um, I'm actually, in, in essence, making a prison for you. Um if you were to take a tennis ball and you were to cut out a circle on this, this tennis ball, you have two circles. The circle, which is the small little piece that you're holding, and then the rest of the tennis ball, which is also bounded by an edge, which is round. Um, it's just right. very concave. So um, how is it that uh, establishing property, land, rights, um, is not an act of aggression? That's a, it's a great question, and uh, it's a great objection. Uh, I'll tell you how I would approach it, and you can tell me if it makes any sense. I don't like to deal with property in terms of stuff before I deal with property in terms of personhood, right? I actually, I've heard your uh, your discussions about it very much so, like are you the owner of your actions and so on, yeah. No, no, let me, let me, I know, it may sound like I'm doing the same thing over, but I promise you it's a slightly different approach. Okay, great, great, great. All right, so let's, uh, as as is usually valuable in this sort of situation, let's talk about my penis. All right, so... Uh, I can put my penis anywhere in, in the world, let's say, in, in a free society, except I cannot put it in an unwilling woman's vagina, right? Or mouth or ear or... Or mouth or ear or armpit or whatever kinky crap is going on in my head. I, <laughs> yeah. I can't do that, right? Right. Now, is it is it that I have become a slave because I'm not allowed to put my penis in an unwilling woman's vagina? Obviously not, um, but it is a limitation of, of what your freedom was prior to it, but the person didn't not exist in that environment so um well i'm just but i'm just saying right i can uh, i can uh, you know if i'm doing if i'm practicing karate uh, I, in my own house i'm perfectly free to practice karate i'm just not perfectly free to practice karate in a crowd right right okay that's a much easier concept to, to get. I'm way able and to explain. And there's less penis talk, so it's less interesting <laughs> to me. But obviously, uh, in, in, at the dinner table, this might be more helpful, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> I understand. So there's a sort of uh, – there is a limitation on our actions. Of course, there are limitations on our actions uh, based upon the, quote, rights. And I use this term just as a shorthand, right? The rights of others, right? Or the existence of another and uh, the, yeah, the existence mutual, of others, right? So it's the old thing that my, you know, my right to swing my fist ends at the tip of your nose, right? Yeah, I would actually go so far as to say your personal body space area, but yes, no, I agree with that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. So, but yeah, I mean, so so the first thing to establish is not the rights in land, but rather the rights in one's body, right? Um, you may have to rephrase that for me. Well, uh, th there's no point talking about property rights with stuff unless you've talked about property rights with your own body first, right? In other words, a woman owns her vagina and can deny entrance, right? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, As you... I found out very, very continually when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so in, any the immediate space around you, I suppose, so as to not fear the idea of your head getting bonked by a board just because the guy's swinging it around in the general vicinity, um, you, you know, maybe a space of a foot and a half, about right, and I, I can't do a lap dance two inches above someone in a bus. Like, I mean, this is common sense things, right? Yes. So we sort of understand that there's, yeah, there's a space. I can't go up to somebody standing by a cliff and go, Bleh! and stop my hand right in front of them. If they stumble back, they might fall, and I'm still responsible as if I'd pushed them, right? So, yeah, there's personal space and, and all of that. But so with, with property rights, you first need to establish property rights in the person before you start talking about the stuff. Because 
if there's no property rights in the person, there can't be property rights in the stuff, right? Yes. Now, the fact that there are property rights in the person means that we can own stuff, right? We, we, we own, I, like, I own my arm, it's fair to say, right? Um, yes, but I don't necessarily call that stuff. Well, it's just matter. So is land. It's just matter. But it's me. I mean, there's no magical distinction between my arm and a couch. Yeah, I mean, it's yes, just there is. atoms, the, right? Well, no, the, the logical distinction is there's a difference between me and mine. Um, so I... No, no, I agree. I agree. No, sorry, I agree. But, but and, and, uh, so I really want to make that distinction to say that, uh, that, that I am responsible uh, or I own, I own myself, right? So that's the me. And now the mine, I agree. We, we haven't gotten there yet, but I'm just telling you how I would approach the question sure, to sure. say, look, I, I have uh, the right to not have my, person, my, my, my body violated, and I am responsible for the effects of my actions, right? So if I go punch someone, uh, I'm responsible for that broken jaw. Absolutely. That I own that broken jaw. That is something I have to fix, right? Like if I borrow someone's whatever and break it, whatever. So, well, you have so, a debt to that, that broken jaw. You have a debt to the – you have to um, reconcile the broken jaw. You don't necessarily own the broken jaw, though. So, well, I, I owe restitution on it. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay, so, so – and the only reason, really, that we're interested in personal property, uh, like the, the the me, the I property, the the, the body property, is because uh, other people will infiltrate it, will do stuff. And so, if I own myself and I am responsible for the effects of my actions, or I own the effects of my actions, See, I then get, if the, sorry, go ahead. I don't get the uh, I own the effects of my actions per se. I know that there is. Uh, well, you just agreed with me. Well, no. Sorry, and I'm not trying to catch you. You just agreed with me about the broken jaw. I own the broken jaw, right? I'm responsible no. for the broken jaw, you could say. I, I, I wouldn't say you own it, uh, and I, I didn't agree with you. I said that um, you have an obligation to the broken jaw. It's a difference. Um, well, let, let, let's put it this way. Am I responsible for breaking the person's jaw if I just walk up and clip them? Oh, certainly. Now, you have to f remember I have a, you know, a, a gay punch where I'm more likely to enter my thumb than anyone else. But let's pretend that I knew how to throw a punch and, um, and broke somebody's jaw. Then I am responsible for that, that broken jaw, right? But it's still their jaw. Absolutely. But it's not their break. If, if somebody just trips and falls down, then they, it's their break. They have to fix it, right? But if right. I go and break their jaw, then I have to fix it, right? Just like your words are your you, – you are responsible for your words. Exactly. Exactly. Again, Tourette's non notwithstanding. Um, but uh, so so if I own if I am responsible for the effects of my actions, right? Then we have established that I have some ownership or some responsibility for that which I create in the world, whether it's a broken jaw or a painting. You have an obligation to it, but not it to you. Go on. <laughs> okay. Um, let's say, for example, um, if I were to make a. Uh, <clears throat> Make a clay pot out of uh, out of some dirt and mud and water, whatever. And um, you know, I've I've made this clay pot. Now I, uh, assuming that I want to see this clay pot see you know appropriate use, then it is up to me to to use it, and thus I am able to use it. But that clay was available to everyone prior to me taking it and moving it and doing things with it. So um, for me to restrain someone else from using the clay pot. Um, is denial of them their freedom to use the, you know, the, the things that are out there that we all had shared prior. Yes, but uh, again, sorry to, to go back, but again, I don't see any fundamental difference between a jaw and a clay pot, 
right? A jaw doesn't just sit there on its own. You have to feed it, right? <laughs> right? You have to give it blood. You have to give it nutrition. You have to give it oxygen. Yeah. Uh, and all of that requires labor. So the fact – I don't see any fundamental difference between making a clay pot and growing a jaw or a penis or whatever. Uh, it's still something that you have put labor into growing. And if I break someone's jaw, I'm not sure how that's fundamentally different than breaking their clay pot. In fact, they've, they've spent – decades growing and maintaining that jaw and keeping it safe and brushing the teeth that are attached to it and and shaving it and moisturizing it that they've put a lot of care into that and so i'm not again i'm not fundamentally sure what the difference is between the labor in a sense that you invest in your jaw and the labor that you would invest in a clay pot well um i guess what it would be is more along the lines of um you are expanding your sphere of control um from your body, which one can readily assume. In fact, I guess if we were to start at the very, very most basic thing is um, if we have an entity put in a virtual reality world um, of sentience and logic, and um, they're capable of doing anything within the constraints of that virtual reality world, they can do anything that they may want. Um, then you have a second entity placed into the same environment. Now, assuming that there is no disagreement with an act, that no one says, no, no, don't do that, stop, I don't want you to invade my space, so to speak, then there's freedom for all. Um, now, it may sound like ludicrous, the idea of having, you know, free, free love, so to speak, um, with the penis example that you were giving, but if you recall the movie um, uh, the Time Machine, the Eloy, were very much that way, um, <clears throat> where they just go with the flow and everything is fine. Um, it's the moment that one chooses to say, I'm going to put a boundary upon your actions to limit it to not affect my body. And at that point, there is a, a moment of aggression, albeit a necessary one. I believe that it is an act of aggression to say, no, you can't do what you want with my body. And then further... Wait, wait, wait. Sorry, sorry. But, but you've got to distinguish between aggression and self-defense, right? Initiation and response. Well, cer certainly. Um, obviously, the the point is, that, though, that if I am in this virtual reality world and you are in this virtual reality world and we both have freedom to do everything that we want to with anything that we want to within the constraints of the, of the boundaries of the system, um, the, the other person's entity <clears throat> does not, per se, deny that. It just is. And you can interact with each other in however way you want. The moment that you choose to um, say, I'm placing a restraint upon you to not do stuff with me is a self-defense action, but it is also an action of initiation of aggression because the prior constraints were that we all had freedom everywhere. Um, it's a logical extrapolation that you, you have limited, uh, you have limited your, your counterpart to not, inter, you know, involve themselves with your existence but it is an act I'm of sorry I'm gonna I'm gonna have to interrupt you because I, I feel like we were making progress yeah. uh, and that doesn't mean that but I feel like we've just gone off on a tangent with virtual realities that I think is interesting I, I, mean, I think it's interesting but I'd like to if we can put the philosophical discussion on hold and just I'd like to ask you a couple of other questions not to, to move the conversation forward philosophically uh, but can you tell me why this uh, this is an important issue for you and I'm not saying it's not an important issue I'm just curious why it's important to you um, well, I am familiar with uh, your book, um, The Non-Aggression Principle. And, I don't well, not necessarily the book, but uh, the, the, oh, the, the idea. The, the idea. It's not my idea, but yeah, the, I mean, I've certainly talked about it. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to put together a thesis, of, uh, a book of some sorts called The Aggression Principle, where it um, 
evaluates aggression on the basis that its self-defense is a initiation of aggression in a certain respects, but it is also a necessary one. And why uh, is this a topic that you're interested in? Um, because I like philosophy, and you've made my uh, mind explore th thoughts and uh, creativity. And yeah, I'm just trying to I'm just sort of trying to sort of understand it. Uh, and again, I'm sort of understand it philosophically. But of all the topics in philosophy, this is one that is of particular interest to you. And again, self knowledge again is is key, right? So the question is, why is this of particular interest to you? This 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 aspect of philosophy. Um, because I find it, um, um, when, when somebody makes a absolute, absolute statements, um, like what you have with, um, you know, consistency is always preferable to inconsistency and, um, and so on. Um, I really get into the, the thought processes behind some of the things that, that, uh, are brought up and, um, the, idea of property rights to me seemed to be a, a break with the same consistency that you had had. And so I was trying to come up with a more consistent statement of how to uh, um, address the concept of personal liberty. You know, personal well, yeah, sorry, I'm one. probably not being very clear. And again, I apologize oh, as for far interrupting. Like my, my own personal life as far as... Yeah, not your solo philosophical, but of all the topics in philosophy, I mean, you know, I could tell you sort of my reasons, which I think are pretty clear, but uh, I think, why is it that that, um, that this is the approach? So you said you wanted to write a book called The Aggression Principle, as opposed to The Non-Aggression Principle. Yeah. It's a very interesting idea, and I think it's a very interesting topic to talk about, but my question is, why? what is your personal history with aggression? Um, my personal history with aggression, um, well, I find that um, when I discuss philosophical things with friends um, that, you know, I receive hostility and um, I am trying to come up with um, a way that I can communicate with those people without um, having this type of uh, harsh reaction, I guess. I don't know. It, it, um, uh, let me go back a little further and say, what was your childhood experience with, um, with aggression? Well, I, I'm sure that every single person who was born and raised in America in this modern day and age wouldn't uh, would be hard pressed to say that they didn't have an abusive father or mother in certain respects. But um, in in my particular case, uh, I found that um, my father, albeit domineering and um, you know a jerk, um, tended to have consistency with his um, perspective that. Uh, he would defend me with his life to the end. And my mom, which was a rather passive, aggressive type, um, would avoid conflict um, to all ends. And uh, whether it meant leaving me on the altar or not. Um, it, Sorry, what does that mean? Sorry, just what does it mean to say leaving you on the altar? Um, well, let's say I went on a trip. Um, there were kids that were on that trip who were abusive towards me, I uh, um, extracted myself from that situation and distanced myself from those people in a way that was following the rules. Um, they came to me and said, well, you can't do that. And I said, I was following the rules. And uh, after a series of, uh, of these events, they sent me home from this trip um, without, you know, 
trying to work things out or whatever. And uh, my dad said, well, that group is not going to receive another moment of my thoughts, my, my efforts, my money or anything. They're dead to me. And I, I'm so sorry you had to go through that type of suffering. And my mom said, well, don't be so hasty. Okay, so I, sorry, and I just really want to make sure I, I understand. So you, you were on a trip, and you were given certain rules or certain parameters of behavior. Is that right? Well, basically, um, we were all at a uh, convention type thing, and there was a series of dorms that we were at. And um, the group was, you know, the kids were being relatively mean to me. So I went to a different floor where there were other people, and I was hanging out with them and having a good time playing cards. Um, well, they didn't know where I was, so they were, you know, absolutely upset. Well, the rules were that you can't leave the dorm, and so I just went to a different floor of the dorm, so that's perfectly within the rules, but they found it still unacceptable. Um, others, right. others so similar. you were obeying the letter of the law. Was there a claim that you were violating the letter or the spirit of the law? Um, I guess the issue was that... Uh, they were trying to um, force me to interact with them on their terms, and um, when I did, according to the you know the letter of the law, um, or the the intent was, uh, I guess the intent was to somehow force us to be interacting with each other in certain respects. I don't know, but I, I do know that I followed the actual lawyeristic. Legally, yeah, I'm mean, of course. Yeah. There's, there's no such thing as the spirit of the law for children. The spirit of the law is just something that people make up so that they can break their own rules, right? Right. I mean, I have to give my daughter consistent and clear rules, and I can't say, well, you obeyed the consistent and clear rules, but you disobeyed the magical, invisible spirit of the rules. I mean, yeah. that's just going to, yeah. right? That just means that she then has to just count out whatever I say in the moment, and there's nothing that's predictable, right? So I don't get the escape clause called the spirit of the laws, or I know you obeyed me to the letter, but you disobeyed something that I didn't explain. I mean, that's just not fair, right? Certainly. Right. So the, the, Okay, so, sorry, go ahead. Then the fact that, uh, that, you know, um, he, despite being, you know, fairly tyrannical um, father, um, had um, showed an immense amount of uh, respect for my own uh, um, being, and uh, he made sure that uh, that I felt a consistency within him. That was, you know, it may be that he is harsh um, with his perspectives, in that uh, he insists that I work hard in school and so on, um, or that uh, I be respectful of my elders, so to speak, th things of that nature, um, and came down hard when I didn't. Um, the, uh, I'm well, sorry, what just came down hard? What did that, what, what that look like? Oh, um, nothing like uh, you know, really horrible punishment, more along the lines of um, uh, imprisonment in my room, so to speak, grounding. Um, Harsh language, abusive language. Um, the only time that he struck me was after I was already like flipping out and being, you know, violent outwardly as well. So, um, the uh, now again, sorry, I just want to share something that pops into my head when you said confinement, right? Yeah, because one of the things that you were very keen on talking about, and you understand, I'm not talking about the philosophical truth or falsehood. This is just a self-knowledge thing, which is usually helpful to me when conversations get stalled, mm -hmm. is you were talking about restrictions on movement right. in, philosophically, right? Well, there's, there's obviously a correlation there. Go on. And, well, it's definitely you know, a, a 
very likely source of how I come to this as being an issue that I want to discuss. Um, I think that uh, I've got, I've grown to have a better understanding of how I interact with my parents and, um, you know, I'm able to move forward from that, but I think that uh, it did give me an underpinning that uh, would lead me to be interested in this topic. Right. Right. Now, if, if it's true that there's some unconscious motivation which is causing you to become interested in this topic, then it seems to me unlikely that you will be able to solve the topic, to solve the problem. Because that, that kind of unconscious stuff is more interested in repetition or per perpetuation of the issue rather than solution. And so the reason that I wanted to stop and talk about this is I felt we were making some steps forward, and I was certainly enjoying that philosophical approach, but I felt that every time we made a step forward, uh, you sidestepped or you would go off on a tangent, and so we weren't able to make any progress. And so I was concerned that there may be some unconscious undertow for you that would, you know, generally the first place is to ask is sort of about childhood and so on. Well, and the thought, sorry, this doesn't prove anything, but the thought that I had in my head was that if you had someone who had uh, rules, and you called sorts of uh, called my uh, arguments uh, absolutism or absolute rules, which reminded me of your dad. Then, uh, in a sense, you're kind of having an argument with your dad. And if that's the case, again, this is all just my thoughts. There's no truth in it, right? It's just a possibility. But if that's the case, then you're not going to be able to solve the problem philosophically because you're not drawn to it philosophically. You're not aiming at solving it philosophically. It's a way of recreating something which needs to be understood about your past. I could see how one could, you know, could make that type of uh, suggestion. However, I, I think that um, I am of the mindset that um, it is not, you know, that is not where my um, philosophy is coming from. I certainly think that it's it's a worthy endeavor to discuss it in, in personal realms as well. But um, I think that I can um, separate myself from that issue in the terms of logic. It's it's like um, Is it impossible for a person to use their brain um, in on a subject when this when the subject is of somewhat personal nature? Some people can, some people can't. I believe I can. It depends on the degree to which oh, you understand the personal nature of it and, and yeah. have sort of processed it or, or understood it. If that yeah, makes sense, absolutely. So and, if you're like if you're very interested and look I, again, I think it's a fascinating topic, and I hope you appreciate that. I'm not trying to dismiss your arguments. You could be completely right, but if you're very concerned about mobility and re restrictions on movement and so on, and a, a core punishment for you by, as you describe, a harsh and abusive father was confinement. Oh, yeah. I got you. That's, that's going to have an effect on, on how you approach the topic, if that makes any Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Again, now, it doesn't mean that you can't. You can't say anything intelligent and sensible and perfectly rational about the topic. But And, and I wouldn't have interrupted and gone in this direction, except I got a very strong feeling. Just feeling. doesn't mean it's true. I just got a very strong feeling that we were approaching the whirly gig of the unconscious uh, as we were uh, moving down the, the, the sort of Socratic path of trying to deal with the topic, if that makes any sense. Um, it does. And, you know, I appreciate the, the introspective line of thinking, and it's certainly worthwhile. But um, I think that, uh, you know, we can certainly go further along the lines of the philosophy of, of um, you know, ownership and... Uh, and whether it's okay, then, then I'm happy to do that. Let's just try and keep the virtual reality stuff out of it because that really is uh, hard to uh, – it's hard to process in it when we're just talking oh, about sure, sure. Um, sort of the, the basics. Okay, well, let, let's keep going, and I certainly appreciate you, you sharing with that, and I'm sorry if it feels like a bit of a tangent, but that to me is always usually more important for the philosophy. That's the foundation of 
having the philosophical conversation. So, so uh, to sorry to move forward, I would say you know, we were talking about how a clay pot you, you you sort of you put a lot of labor into growing your jaw or your kidney or whatever, and we understand you can't just open up someone up against their will and take out their kidney, but you put a lot of effort into growing your kidney. Uh, I uh, massage mine with baby oil daily, uh, and that really helps lubricate my salsa moves. But um, uh, so you grow all of the things in your body, and you maintain them, and you exercise them, and you feed them and all that and you keep them warm and give them rest and so on and so I can't see the fundamental distinction between your kidney say and a clay pot both are things that you have put effort into uh, growing and maintaining and both of which uh, through that effort through you know the fact that the clay pot wouldn't exist without you creating it and the fact is that you know, your kidney would not be available to the kidney thief if you didn't grow and maintain it uh, so I'm not sure. Again, I'm, if it's the if the person owns, if we own our own bodies and the effects of the labor that we've put into growing and maintaining them, I'm just hard pressed to see the distinction between that and a clay pot. Well, that's where I suppose the uh, the initial assessment that you own yourself is it's somewhat at odds with what it, some of the things that I think. Um, let's say, let's say for example, if I were um, to shout something. You don't own your eardrums to the point that I can't manipulate them. And so, in essence, you do... Well, sorry, sometimes yes, right? Right. I mean, it's the old argument of the fire in the crowded theater, right? Right. And they're, I mean, but you, you can choose to run or you can choose to stay or whatever. But uh, the point no, is... No, but if, if somebody says there's a fire body. or somebody says there's a fire in a crowded theater and people get stampled or... Uh, Stampled. That's stampeded and trampled, put together. Hey, look, we've yeah. made a new word. If somebody gets uh, trampled on the way out, then yeah. the person is you know, responsible for that. Oh, sure, sure. And, but um, the idea that uh, you control all of your body is not 100% accurate. If um, I move in front of you, I've caused your optic nerve to change. And so it's there is a certain limitation. But I guess the, the point – I'm sorry, I, I, I just – forget that um, – the point that that you're talking about is a difference between me and mine, and I believe that there's a significant distinction between the two. And yeah, help me understand it, right? So I grow my kidney. You can't take my kidney. I make a pot. You can't take my pot. That's sort of the way it works for me. But I'm I'm happy to hear the difference. Well, um, in the case of the pot, you have to have taken from the environment something and done something with it. Now the sweat and toil. Sorry, sorry, started... sorry to interrupt, but that's the same thing is true for my kidney. Right, I have to have eaten. I have to have rest and shelter. Or there have to be something. I have to have taken something from the environment to have a kidney, right? Ah, that's great. That's that's exactly the type of of thought that I I needed to help me get past this concept. Um, okay, so by eating and taking away the um, the apple from the orchard, I have denied everyone else the apple. Um, in, no, in order. no, sorry, that's that's not correct. And again, I'm sorry, I really, really apologize for the interruptions, but but uh, it's not correct because you only get the apple. I mean, you fundamentally, in terms of the way that I look at property, right? And, and we're not talking about one guy wandering in an empty forest eating apples because who gives a shit, right? right. Or if there's two guys, who gives a shit, right? There's going to be enough apples for everyone, right? Property only arises in a situation of scarcity, which is why we don't... Sure own air unless we're underwater, right? And you scuba gear, you own it or whatever, right? But where something is plentiful, uh, you don't uh, 
you don't uh, you don't own it. Well, let, let's say there's no shortage. Let's say that you've got a. So wait, 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 wait. Again, I know you want to find a, a, the break for every rule that I'm proposing, and I'm willing to accept that there are times when it's blurry and confusing. But but by and large, oh, sure. scar- property only arises in a situation of scarcity, and so either. Nobody else cares that you're eating the apple, in which case there's no point talking about it philosophically because you're one guy in an orchard of 10,000 apples and you're eating an apple a day and nobody cares, right? Right. Because there's nobody else to contest the property with you. But fundamentally, the way that I view it, and this is the way I think that almost all property works in the world because there's very little that's left in a state of nature anymore, right? The way that it works is you only get to eat the apple if the apple only exists because of your prior labor. Right, so so let's let's talk about fishing is a little easier because it's uh, so so let's say we got a bunch of people living around a lake, yeah. and I go out in the early morning, uh, and I make myself a fishing net, uh, and it takes a lot of work to make that fishing net. Oh boy, right, and then I go out and I I bake a boat and I, <laughs> I take my boat out and I I spend the whole day and I pull up five fish out of the lake. Right, right. Now, in a sense, those fish as property have not been found they have been created because there was no chance for anybody else to eat those fish while they were at the bottom of the lake. So the fact that I have brought those fish up to the top of the lake has created something. It has not just stolen something from other people because there was no way that other people could have eaten those fish if they were still at the bottom of the lake. So I've moved it into, I've moved those fish into a place or a framework called property from not not a state of being not owned but unownable they're out of a state of property because whether the fish are there or not makes no difference to people at the bottom of the lake like if they're at the bottom of the lake because you can't eat them either way right same thing if i go and i i dig and dig and dig and i find some gold and i bring the gold up and i you know i i <laughs> use whatever process they use and i get it out of the ore and i you put it in a ring and so on right well I'm moving it into a state of property from a state of nature. It's not. It's it's unownable when it's in the ground. So the only reason that rings there is because I've created the property. I haven't taken it from someone else. The same thing is true with land. The fundamental issue with property and land is that nobody cares at all about property in land at all. Not even a tiny little bit. People only care about property that can be made from the land. Because if I said, listen, uh, I'd like to sell you an acre of land, but you can't ever look at it, you can't visit it, you can't grow anything on it, you can't ever resell it, you can't ever write, but how much are you going to give for me? Nothing. Because you can't do anything with it. Whereas if I say, right. I'm going to sell you an acre of orchards and you, it produces 5,000 apples a year, which you can eat or sell or whatever, what you're buying is not the land, but the apples. Right? The land is, who cares? If I say, you have this land and you can build a house on it. Then you can then, you know, what you're buying is a place to put a house. You don't care about the land fundamentally. Uh, so right. so that's the, the issue is, is what gets produced or created out of the – so you're not taking something from someone else. You're bringing something into existence that didn't exist before and therefore how can it be somebody else's? Well, it's um, a very good point. And um, I guess the the only thing I would say is that um, if if you have an area of land, you know, let's say we're on this island and whatever, and you've got a guy who loves to paint, um, and he paints sceneries and so on. As soon as you've established this uh, um, house upon the land, um, then you have denied him the scenery that he would have had before. And if he had somehow made staked claim to the paint, you know, that scenery, so that he could paint it in a prior 
claim, then he would have been aggressed against. But uh, since he hasn't staked claim, no, 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 no. It's, sorry, it's open but to you, na- you sorry. That's to say that you own everything that you see, but that's not true, right? I mean, well, if I look uh, at someone's car, I don't get to own it. So the, the fact that I can see mountains in the distance doesn't mean that I own the view, because that would well, mean I own everything between here and the mountains just by looking at the mountains, and that's not valid, right? Well, it's it's valid until you establish property rights. Well, no, because if if you're saying that I own everything that I that I look towards and everything in between it, then you've already established property rights. Right. You, you can't that, own that everything own between it. between like if I if I if I uh, live on a high mountain and I look 360 and I can see 50 miles in every direction, does simply looking at everything mean that I own it? No. Now, if I want to maintain my view to the um, uh, if I want to maintain my view to the mountain, then I simply have to uh, buy or cultivate or infuse my labor, as Locke would say, or own. Everything between me and the mountain, right? That's 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 sure. the way to do it. Now, sure. but, you but I, you know, or I can ask someone, or I can go to somebody who, like, let's say, somebody uh, uh, starts building a house uh, a couple of hundred yards away from my property or whatever. I can go over to that person and say, "Listen, I really love this view. Uh, I'd like to keep it." And so you could negotiate with that person and say, "You either pay for them to not build five stories, but only four, or whatever it is." You could sort of negotiate with them to um, uh, to maintain that. Uh, uh, that idea, but yeah, you know, you you can't own everything that that you see, and you can't own a view. I think that's that's fairly uh, fairly clear. So, if we establish, then it's the negotiation process at the beginning that basically, um, if we were all on you know some, the desert island, and um, I say, hey guys, I'm going to build a hut over here, um, will that bother anybody? And they'll say, well, no, you can't build it there because that's where we're going to be. That's where we keep all of our apples. Um, well, then I'll build it over here, or can we store the apples over here? Is a negotiation that's done, and it's all um, it's all done with respect of non-aggression. Yeah, is yeah, it? certainly. Uh, I mean, property is 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 negotiation because if you want to just go take stuff, then you know you're just Genghis Khan. You can go take stuff, right? Oh, so, sure. yeah. so property is a, you know it's sort of mutually assured destruction. Like we respect property because if we don't, then no one's going to respect property and no one can have anything. We're all going to starve to death. So there is a kind of, I think, mutually assured destruction around property. But um, no, I, I think that uh, again, I just just focus on the self ownership. Uh, and well, yeah. um, it, you've made great points. That to me is, is the real key. It. Yeah. Okay. Um, fantastic. And um, I've, I've I've got a, a clear understanding that it's not necessarily an aggression to create the property. It's more along lines of a uh, of a negotiation that is you know implied consent or consent. Um, you know, like if I were to go out to the um, mud ponds and start digging away to make my my um, clay pot, and you come over and are like, "Hey, dude, um, that's where we take our mud baths. Don't." use that mud and we negotiate well then no aggression has been done um so yeah i can see that uh that property rights don't necessarily invoke an act of aggression no no for sure although it is perfectly valid to use violence in the protection of property it's very unusual in terms of like nobody shoots someone for putting a toe on their property that doesn't really happen unless the person is psychotic in which case that's you know they're outside of morality and just sort of a rabid beast but but the reality is that if you know if somebody wants to come and take my kidney i'm perfectly it's perfectly acceptable and i would actually see aesthetically preferable action to to use violence if necessary to keep somebody from taking my kidney right well sure and 
That's and it. and so and another way of looking at it in terms of creation versus versus uh, like so if you have a child with a woman, uh, the child would not have existed, right? If you hadn't you know uh, made the beast with two backs and grown the kid and and done all that, gone through labor and so on, that child is in existence now, which wasn't before, right? So it's right. not like you've stolen a child, you've created a child, and that's why no one else gets to take that child away from you unless you're doing something completely heinous. So so yeah, I, I think that. The property is is that which is created. To focus on land is is to sort of say, well, there's a fixed amount of stuff, and if I take it, I'm restricting everyone else's liberty, and now I can't go anywhere, and so on. But people don't just take land, right? What people do is they use land to create stuff. So people say, well, I want to I want a house, and I don't want to I don't want to make a house all by myself because I mean, especially a modern house. I mean, it's crazy how complicated it is to make a modern house, right? But the only way you're going to get a house is if people have property that they can build on and then sell it to you. Right, so uh, to say, well, I want to go anywhere and not have any restrictions. Well, if you have a system like that, then you just there's going to be nothing but desert around. Yeah. There's not going to yeah. be any houses. There's not going to be any roads. No airports. No grocery stores. No nothing. Right. So you can have that uh, consistency, but that just means you live in a desert and die from your first toothache, so to speak. You know, that's just sort of a practical consequence of that situation. So just to recap, the two things that really were the the sticking points that I had you've, that you've addressed. Um, the first one being that. Uh, um, uh, changing nature to um, produce a product is not actually, um, it, it's basically, crea it's a creative process and uh, not a theft-based process. And um, that the ownership of land is not for land's sake, it's the ownership of land for the product that it can produce. For what you can create. And also that there's no distinction yeah. between your kidney and your clay pot in any fundamental way. Yeah, absolutely. So, or you could say you're uh, spleen. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great uh, analysis. I, I thank you for uh, clearing that up for me. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. And that was a great. I, I I like the property stuff. It is a real challenge. You know, it is a real challenge. I think it's sort of in a way. It's sort of like UPB in that it's a challenge, not because it's so inherently hard, but simply because we've received so much nonsense about property. Like there's this thing going around at the moment. That's really kind of annoying, uh, which is uh, – and this was – I think it was Elizabeth Warren who had originally um, – uh, and she's actually named because her head is full of uh, little burrows where bunnies live, I think. But Elizabeth Warren was talking about how no one achieves success all by himself or herself. Success is a collective endeavor. Uh, uh, you know, Everybody who uh, builds uh, something is, is using stuff that has been built by other people or using roads that have been built by other people and therefore we're all involved in everyone's success and blah, 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 blah. And, and Peter Schiff, when he was talking to the people at um, the Occupy Wall Street, I think it was, uh, that uh, he was talking people say, well, everybody's participation in people's success, this and that and the other. And, I mean, it's a load of nonsense because it, it leaves out the essential element of trade, which is, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I buy a computer in order to do, do a podcast. No question. I buy headphones. And so, uh, yeah, Sennhauser and uh, who's my gateway made the refurbished computer that I'm currently using, which is a great computer, by the way, and the Sennhauser headphones are good. The microphone could be slightly better, but not the end of the world. But uh, the fact is that I didn't take from them and steal this stuff. Uh, you I, compensated uh, them. 
I liberated it from the capitalist overlords. No, yeah, I mean, I, you know, we traded, we traded. So it's like, yeah, of course, yeah, everybody's yeah. involved in everyone else's success. But in terms of voluntary trade, it doesn't mean that you get to take from people who are successful because you're metaphysically exactly. involved. It's what, what Peter Schiff was saying. Were you there in my one bedroom apartment 20 years ago when I was working 20 hours a day to start my business? No, of course not. So, the, you know, it's, I, I, own, I own part of your profits because I'm alive and I use roads too. I mean... <laughs> It's just crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and, and, and this is what I would like from socialists too. I wrote this essay a long time ago. I'm still very proud of it. Uh, I called it um, Marxism, but it was spelled M-A-R-K-S-I-S-M, uh, Marxism, uh, in that people who want the redistribution of wealth because of unjust economic situations should obviously lobby their universities for a redistribution of Marx. Because some people are born smarter than others and some people are born uh, with parents who give them uh, an easier time in school or who help them out in school and other people don't. And some people inherit a better work ethic through the example of their parents than others. But I've never seen a single socialist in university say, listen, I'd like to take uh, you know, 15% or 20% or 50% of my grade and donate it to the less able students uh, in my class. And why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't you do that? Uh, I, I just use <laughs> because because they all want high marks so they can <laughs> stay away from socialism and stay in the Marxism with a K called graduate school and professorships and so on. But I've never seen these people lobby in an area that they can actually have a lot more control in and say, listen, I need to donate a couple of grades to the, the, the less able kids in my class because it wasn't my fault. I just happened to be smarter or a better student. It's not my responsibility. The redistribution of income uh, is something that everybody plumps for, but the redistribution of marks seems to be a little less interesting to, to graduate students who are socialists and uh, undergraduate students who are socialists. And I think that's, uh, that tells you a lot about their <laughs> motivation. Anyway, I think we're going to move on to another caller, but thank you so much. I really appreciate your, uh, your uh, uh, honesty and your openness. And uh, I, I like the topic. I know people have mixed feelings about abstract topics. One last, but, uh, one I, last thing before I, like I go. It. It's not a new topic or anything. I just wanted to um, ask if you had seen um, a movie called, uh, um, called Harrison Bergeron. I have not. Um, I Tell would highly that. recommend it. Um, Harrison Bergeron is a, um, it was a book, uh, I don't know, a short story book. Um, and uh, basically it's a society after the, uh, the second civil war where um, the people without talent um, revolted against the people with talent. And um, government's um, job is not that all men are created equal. It's that all men are not created equal. It is government's job to make them so. Um, and they use uh, brain intrusions to prevent people from being too smart. Um, it's uh, by Vonnegut. It's uh, huh. just a, quite an That's amazing... That's sort of prescient. Uh, it's sort of prescient. Thanks for the tip. I appreciate that. It just popped into my mind that uh, they use these brain invasions to keep people from being too smart. It sounds a lot like SSRIs being prescribed to restless children in dumbass public schools, but... Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, but yet, <laughs> it's uh, going on right like now. We're, we're experiencing it now. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, well, thank I, you. Thank you so much for your, uh, your insights. You've been a, a great help, and um, I look forward to other discussions. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. All right. Do we have – how much filler do I need? Oh, man, you should have seen it so down at Libertopia. I had to do about 25 minutes of filler because we couldn't find a speaker. <laughs> so – and all I did was ended up chatting and making dumb jokes with the crowd. It was actually quite a lot of, quite a lot of fun. But uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff that happens when you are hosting an anarchist event. Uh, James, do we have anybody else? Hey. Or do I need to do filler now? Hey, can you hear me? I sure can. How you doing, man? I'm doing real good. Uh, are you getting any feedback from my speakers? No, no. Maybe you should turn your guitar up a bit. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> go on. Okay. 
All right, well, I'll just jump right into it. I've called twice before, and, and essentially mine's more of relationship issues that I seem to have a hard time <clears throat> overcoming emotionally, even though I understand them intellectually, and I'm currently in therapy, so I'll just preface with that. Um, in your 720th podcast titled The Hell of a Temple Connect, <laughs> you talked right. about how one is rejected in one's childhood by his or her parents, and then one starts to believe that people who reject him or her are good, and that, and then um, he or she is somehow defective or an irritating person. Like, it's just an innate deficit um i would probably i I mean i'm not sure what i actually said but it would probably be something closer to justified in in that rejection you know like if my mom rejected me then uh i must be that person who people reject and therefore somebody else rejects me it kind of justifies what my mom did kind of thing if that makes sense yes 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 yeah that's that's better um and again i get that intellectually but i still find myself being like attracted to women who once i accept them reject me I mean, they're, they, they seem very, 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 very interested right up until the point where I just say, like, I'm just going to fully accept you. And then I guess I kind of see where the stereotype for the girls liking douchebags come from, because, like, if I would treat these women <laughs> like, like, if I would reject these women, like, hang out with them, but, like, when I was with them, kind of make them, like, reject them a little bit, they seem to be more attracted to me. But I don't want to have to do right. that stupid shit, because that's stupid, and that doesn't, that doesn't feel right. Um, so despite all knowing this, I, I still find myself, and it's not, it's not like I look at this girl and go, ooh, I like her because she's going to reject me. But somehow, some way, my subconscious picks up qualities in their actions that goes, you know, and then there's just a trend. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not purposely going, I want somebody who's going to reject me. She has what I, she looks like she'll do that. Because they start right. off all nice, and then eventually, long story short, they just end up, you know, rejecting you once you fully become emotionally vulnerable. Um, right, right, right. So do you have any... <laughs> um, and I find it hard to put an end of this cycle. I don't want to be attracted to these type of people because I know intellectually and logistically on paper that it's like equals bad time later on. So do you have any perspective or advice on how to overcome this freedom hurdle? Who do you think gets hurt more from that interaction, you or the woman? Me? <laughs> that was a question. <laughs> that was a question. Me? Me? No, well, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just curious of, what you think. Well, here's the way I think. I think I end up getting shit on too but at the same time i think the reason i think it makes them feel uncomfortable the fact that people can be accepting of them i'm, I'm not so sure it's something they're 100 percent used to so it might make them feel anxious but i say ultimately i end up getting shit on more right 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 i mean because there to me there's there's always been a subtle kind of vengeance in enabling people to continue destructive behaviors like the, and so, in a sense, it, it, there are two sides of the, this equation, right? Two two sides of dysfunction that are acting out, right? So there's you, who's uh, pursuing girls who are only interested as long as you're pursuing them, right? Once you you accept them and so on, then they they reject you, right? Now, how yes. do they reject you? Do they just sort of be, they, they vanish? Do they not return phone calls? So like, how does no. how do you know that they've rejected you? Well, for instance, I was just in a relationship with a woman who said, "Um." She was having troubles with vulnerability, and she was saying that I was draining, and we had some conversations before, and um, what happened is, uh, wait, I think she I, said, she, she, can she I, said, can I guess, um, can I guess, yeah, can please. I guess, you had lots of conversations about self-knowledge and history and all of that kind of good stuff, and she got exhausted of all of that stuff and said that it was really draining to, to talk about that stuff all the time, and she wanted to just have more fun. Uh, essentially, yeah, more in that ballpark. Yeah, it's not like I spent the whole time. Spe- I, I wasn't like, oh, government. No, I know. Speech. I got it. I got it. Uh, you weren't like, like a, 
you can't go to sleep. I haven't talked to you about what happened when I was two and a half yet, right? Oh, now yeah. I get it. But you had these yeah. conversations which were of interest to you, and she found them uh, draining, right? Yes. She also claimed that I wasn't – she said from the beginning she felt that there wasn't a romantic connection. But yet continued to hang out with me because I had gotten along with her brother really well, and I was the first boyfriend her family had actually liked. And all of Wait, her so friends. Wait, so she didn't reject. Sorry, she didn't reject you at the end, right? That's sort of an important detail. What right? she did is she said some. Well, she said some statements that made me go, "Okay, well, then the only logical concept." She said, "I could never see, I could never see myself in a, in a long-term romantic relationship with you." And I said, "Okay, then we need to break up." Like it didn't feel good, but it was wait, like wait, matter wait, of fact, sorry. like. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I don't understand. So she initially said, I don't see you in a, in a romantic vein or a romantic light, right? And then no, you started that was dating? No, no, no. Oh, that, that was, was at the end. end of it. Yeah, that was like right at the end where she said that. And I, and then I just like was like, okay, um, the logical consequence of that is you know, I'm not going to spend our whole time trying to prove that two plus two equals five. That's just silly. I'm not going to waste my time and energy or yours. Well, but you did waste your time and energy. How long did you go out for? Six months. And I had signs looking okay. back at you. Like you say, you can always look yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, okay. So tell me, tell me about the signs because I, I bet you there's nothing you, you need me signs. to tell you. You can tell me all about it. Okay. So tell me about the signs. Well, for instance, uh, we started dating and we were all – she was super – she said she'd never been with a guy who could be so open and who she could actually say what she liked and all that jazz. Um, said it felt right, et cetera, et cetera. And then so she took this trip to San Francisco to go visit her friend. And while in San Francisco, she was there for – seven days and called me maybe twice and I could tell it was kind of more like if I call him he's, he's going to get upset instead of like for me or if I was in that position because I'll be honest with you it hurt my feelings you know what I mean if I was in, if I was of going course. to save for seven days I would be I would at least give them a five minute phone call at the end of the night just letting him know I was thinking about him wanting to let him know what my day was like what was your day like still trying to maintain some sort of connection How I don't long did you want be to going out when she uh when she went to San Francisco Oh, three months. All right. So, so no, 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 no. That's way too late. So go back. Go back further. What were the signs earlier? Three months. Nice try. Oh, I have to try for three months before I find out there are any signs. Yeah, no, no, I get thank to you. guarantee you it was the first five minutes. Um, well, we – it was the first five minutes? Oh, yeah, this three-month thing. I mean, or it's, no, it's way back, way back. At least, look, this is my belief. I mean, they're, they're, you know, talking out of my armpit, but this is my belief, right? So, so tell me about when you first met. How did you meet? Well, she. I like uh, this. I like this. It sounds like I'm giving you us. orders, and I apologize. Tell me, tell me. No, I get a swinging light bulb and rubber trench. credibility. I'll, no. Um. All right. Well, I try not so to blow it. So, so tell me when you my car. Okay, we met online. My car was broken down, and it was in the shop. So she came. She lived 45 minutes away. So she came and 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 came over and went on a hike in our area. She came over to my house. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. That you know, just you met her online and she came to your house. We chatted for for I say we ch we chatted for three weeks before meeting in person, just like Facebook chatting. Okay, so and let's go back to um, so let's go back to um, it, was it a dating site? Yes. Okay. And um, what was it that attracted you about her profile, or did she contact you? I had contacted her. Um, the fact yeah, that yeah. she was into board games, which I like a lot. I don't know. If, I haven't found many people that actually think board games are cool in their 20s. Um, 
Board games like yeah. what kind of board games? Just out of curiosity. Like word games like um, Scrabble, Boggle, oh, yeah, categories. Yeah. Warhammer, Scrabble. Anyway, so go on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I found that because you know, growing up, that's me and my sister played a lot of board games, and I always just find I, I like that the way you can use my mind like that. It's fun. Um, she seemed open to these type of ideas. She was an atheist, or I guess she was agnostic, but I but reasonable. So I thought, you know, kind of the same way when you started dating Christina, she was agnostic, but you were like, you know, she's reasonable yeah, enough that if I play the bricks yeah. in a line, she'll make the trip over to atheism. All right. So, um, I like that she was older. Um, she did, however, she hasn't completed college. She hasn't even gotten her associates, but that to me is not like a make or break thing, you know? However, I've, you know, I, my family's type of family where, you know, I have two bachelors, my mom has a master's, my sister, you know, we kind of just go to school. That's what we, you know, it was like a no brainer for me. I get, I guess my biggest signs is that she would say she wanted things and then wouldn't do the actions to actually get them. Like what? Uh, she would say she wanted to go to school, then her parents would offer to pay and she wouldn't go to classes. All right. And why? Well, she didn't even sign up for classes because she said she didn't want to be a financial burden on her on her parents, even though her parents had offered, like, gladly. Right. And um, what do you know about her, her family, her history, her childhood, her relationship with her parents? I know she's been very, very close with her mom, um, like, kind of friend, like, go hang out together, watch movies together if they're, you know, bored type thing. And then with her dad, it had been a little bit more stoic and stern uh, growing up. The type where he would, you know, if they got mad at each other, he would buy her things to say sorry. Not, not very good at emotionally communicating um, his love for her. Right. Yeah, I mean, so as a guy, I mean, the, the place to look is, it's not the only place to look, right? But generally, I think it's fairly common knowledge that the place to look is, is the woman's relationship to her father. It's not. It's not a hundred percent, and it's not you know a perfect template. But if it's if it's unconscious, like if if there's a lack of knowledge or lack of self knowledge about a woman's relationship with her father, it's going to have a huge impact on your relationship with her, right? Yeah. And so, what was her level of self knowledge uh, about her relationship with her father? So far as that she knew it wasn't the best growing up, but it's now better type thing. Like I guess he used to not say "I love you," and now he does. And before, he would never really hang out. Like, for instance, growing up, she joined a basketball team that he was coaching just so she could spend time with him. She didn't even like basketball. Um, and, uh, you know, just now, I recently... Mean, the, the word that comes to my mind is that seems quite desperate, right? I don't mean that there's anything yeah. wrong with what she did, but in order to it spend did, time with your dad, you did, submit yourself to a desperate. sport you didn't like. That's so yeah. sad. Anyway, go on. Um... So, yeah, I guess I've been, then she had a brother who she's really close with. Um, I think she always was kind of left out because they'd always do athletic stuff like, like tennis and she wasn't good. So she would just sit out at the sale play tennis. I don't think it was, she, she's the type of person where she very much likes the validation of others. Right. So, now you I'm, said I'm with not, her mom that she's close because they go to movies and stuff together, right? Like they're they're kind of like friends slash you know what I mean like like she's you know like she would still braid her hair and she's twenty five. 
okay. <laughs> like she would be like, "Do you want me to break your?" She would always try to be like, "Do you want to spend? Do you want to stay overnight?" Like she's twenty five. I guess she's twenty five, and she would still hang out with her family about four or five times a week, despite having um a apartment in town and a boyfriend. She would still spend about four or five nights a week at her at her parents' place. Right. Um, now, but you see, proximate and close are not the same thing, right? So, and again, I'm certainly not criticizing this woman's relationship with their family. I'm just telling you what I think. But yeah. um, going to see movies and braiding hair and spending time with each other is not, to me, evidence of closeness. Yeah. It's not. I mean, I mean it's to, to, be, <laughs> to, be in, to be proximate to someone is, is necessary but not sufficient for closeness, right? Uh, yeah. So let me let me tell you the, the the two things that popped into my head that would be an indication of closeness, right? Uh, number one, so her parents offered to pay for her to go to school, and she said no, she doesn't want to be a burden on them, right? Um. Yes. Yes. She okay. Said- so uh, did she talk about this with her? Did she sit down and say, "Well, I don't want to be a burden, and here's why"? And did they have a conversation about that? They they asked her why. One time, I remember we were out eating with her brother and her mom and she mentioned that and her brother goes oh that's just an excuse and the mom didn't say anything but uh right because if look if if a family member look this is my ideal family stuff right so you know it's it's a high standard no question right but if a family member is stuck i think that it's it's the responsibility of everyone in the family who claims to love that person to sit down and do whatever it takes to help that person get unstuck Right. Clearly, the problem is not money alone because people can get to school if they want. I mean, I was on my own since I was 15 off and on, and I managed to hack my way through school by working a bunch of jobs and going gold panning and stuff. So, you know, where there's – I really believe that even, even though things are tough, where there's a will, there's a way, right? Yeah. So the brother is probably right that it's an excuse, but it's kind of humiliating to have somebody talk about the unconscious motivation – without helping you out with it, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, it's like so being like, says, oh, you're just stuff, making excuses. Sorry? It's like being like, your paper's bad, and you'd be like, well, why is it bad? Is that kind of like that? Yeah, or like some, some coach saying, you suck at running without helping you get better. But the job of the coach is to help you get better, right? The job but, of family and friends is, is to help you with, with the difficulties that you may be having, right? And I had a conversation with her too, and I was like, "So, you do you trust your dad? You know, do you trust your family with your finances?" And they've done fairly well. You know, they do they have a profession where they can have a nice house and all to add, add on to it, etc. It's like, do you trust your family with your finances? I'm like, and she said yes, and I was like, okay, then, then then I was seeing an issue here because you're saying the reason you didn't go is because you didn't want to, you know, put a financial burden, but yet you say you trust. You know, anyway. So, and long story short, I think you probably see, but why would somebody be attracted to a woman like this? Well, uh, let's uh, let's ask. I've got a couple of more questions, if you don't mind. So, if you were to take charge in this family, right? <laughs> Why not, right? <laughs> you were to take charge. You would have everyone sit down and say, "Listen, my you know, my girlfriend is 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 stuck. She wants to go to school, uh, but there's this issue of of money, and she doesn't want to be a burden. Uh, so, I'd like to you know, I'd like to sort of facilitate. Let's let's you know, I know I'm not part of this family yet, but obviously, I I care about your daughter, and let's sit down and let's talk about uh, how how we can help her." To, to move forward, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if you were to have that conversation, 
Uh, I mean, I'm this, for for those out <laughs> out there who may end up dating Isabella. These are the standards that I want. That if there's something that we can't see in the family, I think it's fair game for anybody who's particularly romantically involved with a family member to sit down and say, let's let's sort this out. Let's deal with this. Let's have an honest conversation. So, if you were to think about doing that, uh, what would your emotions be? What would your feelings be? Anxious about calling this family up before you broke up with the girl, but calling the family up and saying, let's you know, let's talk about this. Um, I would be anxious. I would feel overstepping my boundaries. Right. 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 Which is, I would guess, the girl's feeling, or the woman's feeling about, about her family, right? Because if she is stuck, right, and, you know, the image of her mom braiding her hair at the age of 25 means that my, my I mean, I swerve towards infantilization of the daughter, uh, for so, the mom's needs, but that, you know, I think so too. I think so bullshit. too. I think so too. Yeah. Right. In, in which case there is going to be pressure against the person moving on. You know, again, this is just ridiculous amateur non-diagnosis from remotely, which you know, means probably very little. But the other thing I would say is that uh, if there's emotional distance from the father, then there may be an over, over emotional quote attachment with the mom yep. and the daughter, yep. Uh, yep. which is probably not that great, yep. uh, resulting in a feeling of alienation and hostility from the brother, which is why he makes cutting remarks. You know, this is just standard family dynamic stuff, right? But yeah. But and that's that's what I mean when I say uh, are they close? To me, close means that you help each other out with difficulties, with with getting stalled, with having problems, which we all have. You know, not do you go see movies together and braid your hair together and spend a lot of time together. That to me is not the same. In fact, it can be quite the avoidance of uh, of intimacy and closeness and openness. Yeah, I think you hit. I mean, I've, I've, me and my mother have discussed similar things and kind of came to that. You know, like was the mom overly dependent on her because she wasn't getting something from dad or who knows. But and the other thing too is that if there is a if she's doing this with you right if there is a pattern of dysfunction in her dating relationships, then it's something that the parents if if you know if the brother is not helping her out and the parents need to sit down and say okay so here's another relationship that didn't work out what do you think happened and why and you know where were the first steps and what did you notice to begin with right like I'm doing this with you and I barely even know you I mean surely parents can help this out with their kids right um, you'd hope yes. Right. So if somebody is uh, if somebody is is repeating a dysfunctional pattern in her life, what I know for a virtual certainty is that she has people in her life who are not helping her with that. Yeah, who are not confronting her on that, who are not helping that cycle to cease. And if it's family, then I would assume that they're involved in building the cycle, which is why they don't want to break it down. Yeah, uh, I guess where this all leads is, is I don't, because she's not a part of my life anymore, so why would I be attracted to somebody with, like, why would I subconsciously be attracted to somebody like this, is, is my, the question I have for myself that I'm having a hard time understanding emotionally so that I can stop, so I can end the cycle of, you know, subconsciously being attracted to a woman that, that, that does this type of behavior. Um, I don't know. Is my first answer. My yeah. second answer is I can give my usual wild-ass guess. Yeah. <laughs> Always. If it yeah. Look, the issue is that um, you find it very scary to not be inhibited in a relationship. Yes. Correct. I, I, I'm going to tell you a great and terrible and wonderful secret about the world. 
which I think just about everybody knows, but almost nobody talks about. And I have waited, lo, these many, <laughs> these many podcasts to talk about this very deep, powerful, and exciting secret about the world. Are you ready? Bring it. Are you sitting comfortably? I bring it. Everyone is always and forever about five minutes away from the truth about their lives. Everybody is always and forever approximately five minutes away from the truth about their lives. And almost all the glitter dust, bullshit, magical northern lights, shiny celebrity, distraction, food, entertainment, media, games, nonsense is all a massive disco ball of distraction to keep people away from the terrifying chasm of those five minutes about their actual lives. Once you understand that, you will understand how much weight in society is leaned against the terrifying, fiery, cyclone wind of those five minutes. If you were perfectly honest and unafraid, you can get to the truth about somebody's life in about five minutes. And that five minutes is everything. And woe betide those who <laughs> cross over the five-minute barrier. Everybody is keeping these five minutes at bay all the time. With drinking, with drugs, with sex, with boredom, with noise, with sports, with travel. They're keeping the five minutes that's constantly circling. It's like a collapsing orbit. It's like a, a true communication satellite that you constantly have to keep bouncing away, pushing back from the upper atmosphere before it burns up and traces out the letters of the truth about your life. Everybody is five minutes away from the truth, always and forever, and everybody knows that. And so everybody is constantly hitting that reset, 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 reset on that five-minute clock all the time. How? But unfortunately, we have, no, we have no bridge to each other except through these five minutes. That is the only bridge that we have to each other. Everything else is isolation. Everything else is manipulation. Everything else is noise and distraction and distance and confusion and the self-consummation of avoidance. Five Tiny minutes. So what can I do? That's how close to, we are. To take on that five you minutes. You take on. You take on the five minutes, brother. You take on the five minutes. That's my suggestion. You I, take on the five minutes. I guess what I'm trying. I don't. I don't. I guess I don't know how. I don't know what you. What am I supposed to be? Sure you do. On? Hey, if you know. Sorry. Hey, if you know what to avoid, you know how to do it, right? If I know what to avoid. Okay, so you, you be this girl. You be this girl and you tell me about your relationship with your dad. So tell me what your relationship with your dad is about. I'll do it in three minutes. I'll do it in a minute. Go. Um, uh, one moment. There's somebody at the door. <laughs> just, you don't have to slip into something more comfortable. We can just role play without the actual role play. Then. All right. Um, so can you ask that question again? I'm sorry. There's somebody at my door. Sure. Okay, so pretend that you're the girl and tell me about your relationship with your dad. Um, yeah, 
Uh, always very stoic. Um, would do anything for my mom or me as far as actions are concerned. Uh, didn't really have the easiest time conveying his emotions to me, being emotionally open, telling me that he loved me or things like that, or no kisses, really. Uh, but Sorry, he, when you say didn't have the easiest time, I'm not sure what that means. Have, did not express his emotions towards the daughter, towards the, you know, towards me if I'm the daughter. Um, right. But show me. Okay, but sorry, me. I just want to point out that's a distance, right? So the first thing you said was he didn't have the easiest time, and then you said didn't at all, right? I, I'm, I'm not criticizing. I'm just pointing out no. that's a big distance, yeah. right? So if I say I'm I sure didn't have the easiest to... time finishing the Boston Marathon, that's very different from saying I never entered it, right? I would say there were probably times, but they are few and far between in which he emotionally expressed his how he felt towards his daughter. Right. And how was the discipline handled when you were a child? Uh, intimidation. Get it right up in your face. Short bursts of anger. So intimidation, like like raised voice, like uh, like touch, like tell me, tell me how that looked. Um, just get about two inches from your face with your back against the wall. That type of stare down intimidation, where you just get angry. Maybe even put your hand next to their their head. Wow, that is. I mean, that that's terrifying, isn't it? I would imagine so. I never experienced anything like it. No, but if the, you're talking as the girl, right? Yes. Um, yeah, but I was the type where I wouldn't back down, and I would try to show. I try to puff up my chest and show him that that didn't work, in which he would only buckle down more. So how did that resolve? What happened then? Well, obviously he he was bigger, so he won. Um, and how did he find win? ways of passively aggressively getting back at him by making how would he remarks. No, sorry, but how would he win? Like, what would that look like? So he would be in your face and, and snarling and, and yelling and two inches from your face, you're backed up against the wall, and what would it mean then to say that he won? Well, his will was going to be done for the most part. I mean, I could, huff, I could huff and puff and go stomp off to my room, but in the end, what he said was going to happen whether I liked it or not. Right. And what did your mom do with all of this? Um, got pissed at him, but um, didn't intervene. Would, maybe would yell at him. Why not? I don't know. Well, well, yelling doesn't really solve the problem of yelling, but why do you think she wouldn't intervene? I mean, that, that was terrifying for you. Uh, I don't know. I personally don't. I mean, sure you do. Of course, look, you lived in the family. For, you lived in this family some, for 25 years. And you, if you don't know them, you don't know anything, right? She was fairly, um, um, I don't know. He, he was clearly the dominant one over her. Have you ever talked to them about your experience as a, as a kid and how scary that was? We've talked because we've talked about how there was a switch about um, in my adolescent years when he stopped using those type of tactics and realized the error of his ways. So he well, kind he of got bigger, right? a period of aggression followed by a more mellow period thereafter. But I don't think we ever talked about exactly how that affected me. Right. So it's kind of something that you don't talk about in your family, right? It's like talked about but never delved into. It's like brisked over. Like, yeah, that happened. But that's it. Right. Right. Why do you think you can't talk about it? Don't know. Sure you do.
uh, for fear of a rejection. Like what? Like not being rejection, excited. Yeah. Um, not certain. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. I'm not certain. So, is it, if if I'm understanding you, I'm trying. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. But are you trying to say that your parents might reject you if you talked honestly about your experience? So some of your experiences, some pretty significant experiences, of being their child. Yeah. So the price of staying in proximity to the family is silence about these negative experiences. Yeah. Do you think that's good? No. And that's the truth. Yeah, so then it goes back to, yeah, what, so why, why would... That was less than five minutes, I think. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I get it. It wasn't a minute. You have to have the right it's, uh, it's tougher to role play with a girl you dated for six months, but you did a great job. But sorry, go on. Um, so again, the, the biggest issue is I get to, to avoid finding girls like this attractive myself, I have to spend that five minutes. Yeah. You got to grit your yeah. teeth. I know it's scary. Because so much of society is against those five minutes, right? Yeah. Right? So let me just uh, – just an example that popped into my head, and it's more global than personal, but it's still important, right? So a priest was recently uh, uh, arrested for selling fake cancer cures, I think it was, right? Yeah. And so it's like, well, that, that priest is bad because he's, he's selling fake cures for a real illness, right? But it yeah. would seem to me that responsible reporting would be to say that all priests sell fake cures to fake illnesses, and the fake illnesses are called sin and hell, right? But yeah. you can't talk about that. Yeah. You know, you, a, 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 um, a company can be fined or people can be sent to jail for selling a bogus cure to a real illness, but if you sell a bogus cure to a bogus illness like sin, um, nobody can talk about it, right? Because you're five minutes. That's not even five minutes. Or taxation is forced, right? Yeah. You just, you, you, you can't, people are five minutes from understanding, not even, that's 30 seconds from understanding the truth about their society. And people are 30 seconds from understanding the truth about religion and the truth about war and the truth about the police and the truth about taxation and the truth, we're all, it's, it's, it's right in our face all the time. And so she didn't like that I had stirred this up in her or something? Well, um, I think that you were not being emotionally open with her. Because if you got up to podcast 700 and you're in therapy, then you know what self-knowledge is all about, right? Uh, and you repeated to me the weasel words that she used about her dad, right? Yeah. Before you even did the role play. <laughs> Which means that you accepted those, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the man's in his daughter's face, yelling at her. I mean, that is terrifying. That is overwhelming. That is wretched. Yeah, I thought so. I mean... And did you call a spade a spade? I said that that's bullying, and she admitted it. We talked about that's what? how that is bullying and intimidation, and that's like that must have been a very you know scary experience. Right. 
Right, but then to connect her to, did you talk about it with your parents, right? Yeah. No, I never did that. And, I mean, certainly, you know, that's my approach. You've got an issue with somebody and you sit down and talk about it with them, particularly parents. I mean, that's such a huge influence on your life. Sit down and talk about it with them. Have an honest and open conversation because that's what love is, right? Love is about not having secrets. Love is about not keeping secrets. Love is about openness and not having significant topics that you avoid because you're afraid of other people getting angry. That is not freedom. That is not openness. Okay, fair enough. So I guess I have to... If I would have had that conversation earlier, I could have ended it a lot sooner. Or, you know, it could have gotten better one or the other. But it would have been a lot sooner and would have saved everybody a lot more time if I would have just nutted up and done that. Can I use... Yes, I mean... Can I use nut? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I, I sort of... I hesitate because I'm trying to think of a way that you don't have to do that, but I'm not sure I can. The way that I don't uh, have to I do think, it is uh, somehow not find these type of women attractive in the first place that would avoid that type of interaction. Like or not want or just... no. See, but but you see, you you you're focusing on her avoidance, and I'm yeah, my argument my is that it's your avoidance. Yeah, it was my it was my avoidance to to not euphemize the situation and to actually approach it directly. Right. Right. Right, and so it's the knowledge of saying that if she has not experienced the truth about her relationship. Look, I'm not saying there's one simple truth about her relationship with her dad, but. Uh, people don't avoid the stuff that works or is pleasant, right? I mean, don't go to the doctor with a sore arm and say everything else is great, right? Yeah. And so it, it, it is um, uh, that that which of that which we avoid we reproduce. That is a pretty foundational aspect of self knowledge. That which we avoid we reproduce. Yeah. And so if uh, if there's, huh, let me just put it. I'm trying to figure out this way. Okay, let me sort of see if I can break it down for you this way. So if she has a father who was not uh, honest and, and open with her and emotionally available to her, then she's probably going to try and train men to do the same thing in order to yeah. save and justify her relationship with her dad, right? I think that's exactly in what happened. In which case, yeah. she's going to try and silence you in the same way that she was silenced, which is why you didn't bring these things up. Yeah, that's, that pretty much nails it right on the head, it feels like. And so rather, you know, one thing you could, I mean, you don't have to say to people, go talk to your parents. I mean, you can, I think it's a useful thing to do, but you, you can say, you can show them what it looks like to be, to really care about somebody. This is, this is so important, everyone. This is so important. This is what I believe is love. And I believe that things which aren't like this are not love. This is to really care about someone, to really care about someone is to help them to see the things they cannot see. Right, I cannot see my own eyeballs. It takes somebody else or a mirror, and there's no mirror in the world of self-knowledge. Right, there are only there is only the honesty of others that bounces us back to ourselves. Right, and this is to really care about someone. Right, you know those intervention shows they have. I think I've watched one or two of them. Those intervention shows where somebody's just going off the rails with drugs or alcohol or sex or something like that. Yeah. Have this intervention, right? It's the people who intervene who care. That is what I mean by love. And if love is possible, 
It has to be founded on honesty and it has to be founded on courage and it has to be founded on a genuine care and concern for the other person. Because you were concerned <laughs> that she was not that attached to you, right? Yeah. But my question would be, how attached were you to her true self? How much did you stand behind her true self? How much did you encourage and woo out her true self? How much did you get behind her true experiences in the face of that which everybody wanted her to avoid? How attached were you? Kind of chickened out. Well, I wouldn't label it quite like that. Yeah, but I did. Because this is prior to you know, you know right? I mean? like, I, These things that you're saying, I wasn't unaware of. But I knew that if I brought them up, oh, okay. it would bring the wrath of Thor. <laughs> yeah. Right. And look, you don't have to bring them up. Right? Yeah. You don't have to bring them up. I'm not saying go around and confront everyone on the bus. Yeah, five minutes. I got a 45-minute no, bus ride. That's nine people. Right? Somebody I'm in a relationship with. But what I'm saying is that if you, if you look into your own heart and you say, I am not in a place where I can do this five minutes with this person, all you have to do is know that, right? So if you can't do the five minutes, bounce. Well, I, I, I really, really resist telling people what to do because there's no point in that. Yeah. But – I think that the right decision comes to you when you say, there is so much that I cannot say in this relationship. And I am interested in having a relationship where I can tell the truth, where I can be curious, where I cannot have to worry about doing my uh, <laughs> macarena of self-knowledge and stepping on four landmines and losing three limbs before I'm done. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that'll definitely be helpful next go around for sure. It'll, I'm, I'm just trying to, what I'm trying to do is just pick up tools so that I can, yeah, again, try not to recreate the past as much as possible, at least the failed past or the past I didn't like, you know? Right. So I don't want to have another relationship. And if there's, if, there's, if there's one word that I can leave you with, the one word that I would invite you to meditate upon, my friend, it is the one word called draining. Yeah, that, that's something that always got to me. I felt like I was defective, like I drained her, like there was something, like I was just too much or something. Right. That is, that is important. People have to want self-knowledge because it's hard, right? Yeah. It's hard work. So if she were 300 pounds and you're like, you know, you should probably try and lose some weight. That's not very healthy, right? And she says, oh, you nagging me about my weight is so draining. Would you think that she would be imminently about to start losing weight? No. It means the defenses are so strong that they're overwhelming any residual goo of the true self, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I guess if people find that draining, it's... Well, you ask people, look, I mean, anybody who's got self-knowledge is going to not be offended by questions about their history, right? People ask me about my history all the time. I think I'm pretty open about it. I'm not yeah. offended. Right. So, you know, if you ask, you know, particularly people meet on the Internet, what the hell do you know about them? Right. Yeah. It might not even be, be a you know, 50 year old trucker in lingerie, as I found out on more than one occasion or been on more than one occasion. But uh, the reality is you ask someone, hey, tell me a little bit about your family. Tell me a little bit about your history and all that. And, you know, I'm, I'm always curious, you know, how was discipline handled? How did your parents resolve conflicts? Look, if you're going to get into a relationship with someone, you're going to have conflicts. And by far the best predictor of somebody's conflict resolution strategies or habits is looking at how their parents resolve things. 
It's a reasonable question to ask. Anybody who's confused as to why you would be asking to someone you want to get into a romantic relationship with, what is your template for problem solving? Anybody who's offended by that is not worth dating. It's a guaranteed disaster. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a bummer, man, because I keep trying anyway, to project what I want off of women because there's so it feels like there's so few of these ones out there that you're discussing that aren't that would be willing to be the five minutes. Right, right, but just discouraged. Uh, this is like that old joke about the drunk, right? The drunk on his knees, uh, he's under a he's under a lamp, right? He's he's on his knees scrounging around. And someone comes by and says, "What are you doing?" He says, "Oh, I'm uh, I'm looking for my car keys." And the guy says, "Okay, you're drunk. You dropped your car keys. I'll give you a hand, right?" So he kneels down, he starts looking, he can't find the car keys. He's like, well, where the hell did you drop them? And he said, oh, it's down the alley. I dropped them down the alley, down that way. And he's like, well, what the hell are you looking here for? Well, this is where the light is. <laughs> yeah. right? So the rarer something is, right, saying, well, diamonds are really rare, therefore I'm just going to go pan on a beach. No, if diamonds are really rare, you've got to look before you look, right? Yeah. If something is really rare, you have to be even more. So if I'm <coughs> take the diamond metaphor, if I'm looking for a diamond, diamond being a girl that's interested in self knowledge, um, a good place to pan might be a philosophy meetup group or something. You're not guaranteed. To yeah, get or you know, a, psych a psychology meetup group or whatever, right? Yeah. Or you know, again, you can uh, you can. I don't know, do what you want on the internet, but just remember, I mean, just be really, really selective. You yeah. Know, if, when they look to replace the CEO of Apple, it's not going to be an open call for resumes, right? <laughs> yeah. I was going to take that. I going to say, well, we'll, yeah, we'll probably get about a million resumes. We're going to interview everyone and try and find the right person, right? That's not how it's going to go down. Well, yeah, thank you very much for your um, insight. It's definitely been helpful. I'm very glad. And, and listen, good good work, good stuff. I mean, I think it's really important to recognize that sometimes it's okay. Like It's like putting a ladder, going up a ladder. One foot goes up at a time. It's, it's, I think it's good. I mean, to, to give you praise what praise is due. I mean, you're in non-abusive relationships. You know, you're learning stuff. You're, you know, it's not bad. It's, you don't have to – the next person you meet doesn't have to be the person you marry. I mean, I think great if you can, right? But – um, I would, uh, uh, you know, be, uh, I think be, be proud and be happy. You know, you're learning, learning yeah, a lot. You're still asking questions. You're in therapy. It's fantastic. The better. Yeah. The more of job interviews you go to, the better you're going to be at them. So I think be happy about all of that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Just knowing to effect efficiently get out of them at the point when you know that the best one's going to turn bad. But anyways, thank you very much. Right. Right. You're very welcome, my friend. Best of luck to you. All right. And, uh, he is a fine looking guy with uh it's actually it's not a six pack of abs uh it's like a 24 pack of abs uh, he's ribbed like an armadillo and so if you can find him online uh well worth the look all right i think we may have time for another question or we got a couple of questions in the chat will my daughter be capable of self-defense how do you answer the language of the state if you don't know it um yeah i mean if she's, is she going to get into judo i mean alex i mean i'm not going to pretend to her judo doesn't exist if she's really interested in doing it uh, i think that's fine my guess is that she's not going to be interested in doing it because i believe i believe without having any empirical proof uh, i believe that people get interested in martial arts 
because they got kicked around a lot as kids and they're left in a state of permanent amygdalin excitement, the fight or flight. And that's where they feel most comfortable and most at home. Uh, we do have a caller on the line, Andre. Andre, my friend, how can I help you? Hi, Stefan. It's Andre from Toronto. Hey, um, how's it going? Good, good. Um, I'm just plowing through uh, through your podcast. I uh, I really just found out about you a few months ago, and uh, it's been a big influence in several areas of my life. Uh, one question I had, uh, just basically to find out your opinion. Uh, my background, my educational background is uh, my major uh, was psychology in uh, York University. And uh, as I was going through my courses, I really found the conventional therapies and approaches to change. I found them really lacking. And I was really disappointed in the, just the amount of effort and time that it, that it, it was supposed to take. That uh, kind of was a convention. I mean, it, it takes years and the months and uh, many hours at a time. And uh, some of your podcasts... Uh, uh, earlier ones. I'm not sure if you've, uh, your position has cha- <coughs> excuse me, changed. Uh, but you, you kind of advocate for the same thing, that a real personal change takes a long time. And uh, I, I just I kind of found myself disagreeing with that. And uh, back, back when I was uh, still studying it, I started looking around for alternatives. And apparently, well, I found that there's quite a big uh, world out there uh, with people like uh, Milton, oh, sort Eric. of people who like the um, people who offer sort of uh, quicker, so to speak, quicker solutions to uh, problems, uh, anxiety, depression, that kind of stuff. Uh, yes, uh, people like Milton Erickson and uh, Richard Bandler, and uh, the whole uh, neuro. This, is it EMDR? There's some sort of uh, some sort of eye flashy thing, and I'm sorry, I don't know much about it. But is it no, that no, kind of stuff? It's uh, neuro linguistic programming, and uh, ah, okay. And the work that's done directly with subconscious uh, under uh, either a state of hypnosis or in a conscious state, but through metaphors and through stories and uh, indirectly, basically, you're you're speaking with a person, but you're actually, you know, you're inserting kind of these uh, messages to the subconscious. So you're not really trying to convince them or talk to their uh, their reasonable mind. You're just directly going to the low, lower level kind of uh, consciousness. And I really right. did a lot of kind of research into that, and it's, it's fascinating stuff. And uh, I'm wondering if, if you've, uh, I mean, uh, what, what your thoughts about that is. And uh... Well, I mean, if you, if you know of an expert uh, that I can interview, I would certainly be happy. I'm, I'm always keen on uh, bringing the latest research in, in this field to, to the audience. So, you know, you can send me a, a, an email. My, you know... Just again, please understand, just I'm an amateur on the internet, so these are just my opinions. My concern would be that if you're just trying to work with one part of the mind rather than the whole mind, I think that you may achieve temporary relief, but I'm not sure that it would be long-lasting. And again, maybe there's studies out there that does, makes this entire – this is just my initial, my initial concern. So to say that the problem is in the unconscious, and that's what we're going to go and fix by providing counter uh, messages, that can be um, – uh, I think that may be a little risky because it doesn't look at the, the sort of the brain holistically, so to speak. Um, and so what I like about, you know, sort of traditional talk therapy uh, and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy in particular, what I like about it is it 
treats the brain as a whole thing. So, you know, there are these ideas in your head or these arguments in your head that, are, you know, we need to challenge them rationally, figure out where they came from, how they were sort of, quote, implanted by your experiences and so on and work to undo them and provide you counter stories. But it's a fully engaged process where the, the sort of whole mind is, is enlisted in that. And I sort of, I don't like, in a sense, going past the conscious mind into the unconscious and doing this, that, and the other, because I think that is... Uh, I, I'm con concerned it displaces dysfunction from one place to another, that uh, I think it's more of a whole brain thing. I, th I think that learning better mental health practices is like learning a new language when somebody is continually speaking the old language into your ear. That's why why it's so hard. And, you know, I it's sort of the idea that, you know, I, I'm trivializing and I apologize, but it's sort of like uh, if I go to sleep with uh, Spanish tape on, I'll wake up knowing Spanish better. Yeah, you're unconscious, going to be listening the whole time, but it's not your whole brain thing. And so I think it's tougher uh, than people think. Uh, and I think that um, the shortcuts can end up being very, very long cuts, right? There's nothing more expensive than something you buy too cheap, right, sometimes. So again, I mean, this is just my initial thoughts and impressions. Uh, I don't have the data. Maybe there's great data out there. But uh, I think that if there was a genuinely easier and faster and more efficient way to do it, I think that there's enough free market left in the arena of psychology that it would be something that would have taken over by now. And so um, short-term gains in terms of happiness are fairly easy to achieve. Um, if you have a, you know, I don't know, if you have a difficult phone call to make or whatever, and then you just decide to put it off for a day, or you phone and the person's not there for a day, you're like, yay, I feel happy, you know, and that's, you know, but that doesn't solve your problem. It's just a relief from not having to do something that is difficult in the moment. And I guess I'm sort of concerned that if people do have, challenging conversations to have with family or members or, or siblings or other caregivers or whatever. And there's a way that they can be hypnotized and reprogrammed, so to speak, into not having to deal with all of that. That may make them happy. Woohoo! Yay! You know, I can take a pill and lose weight uh, rather than deal with whatever traumas have led to my weight gain uh, from a, a, uh, a psychological level. So, yeah, I guess that would be my concern. Again, this is just my thoughts off the cuff since you asked. But uh, if you have data, if you have experts, whatever, I would certainly be uh, be happy to uh, to look over that i'm you know i obviously can't dismiss anything because science is all that's constantly evolving but uh, i would approach that with uh, quite a bit of skepticism but but we'll see and i mean this was my approach too i mean I, i'm just i'm very skeptical by nature and uh, that's why i found uh, a lot of your stuff so powerful because it really uh, really agreed with uh, you know many problems that i had uh, throughout my life with uh, you know, religion and state and uh, traditions and all that. It just I found it repulsive, and I always, uh, I always wanted to kind of discover things uh, uh, for myself on my own. And uh, basically, the premise of, uh, of of change, working with directly with the subconscious, uh, I guess, is that uh, the conscious mind it kind of acts as a filter, it's like a gatekeeper in a way. And uh, in order to solve these deep, deep rooted, deep seated issues. Uh, family and uh, you know abuse and uh, stuff like that you basically you need to kind of meddle with the lower level controls like low, lower level code if you will you know in programming like a kind of kernel level uh, stuff and if you try to uh, that's what I'm saying that's the view from the more progressive kind of uh, these uh, therapies yeah and again I'm I'm certainly I mean uh, there was a woman at the um uh, at Libertopia, who was talking to me about how there seems to be a genetic basis for psychopathy or sociopathy, and 
you know, I tried looking into it. I can't find any conclusive evidence. But again, you know, this stuff is changing all the time. And, you know, we always have to be open to new information. And um, like there was a, a study that was uh, commissioned by the Koch brothers who are, you know, really Tea Party, libertarian-y kind of right Republican people. Uh, a study into gloaming, global warming that has uh, – that the guy who did the study has uh, – seems to have established at least to his satisfaction that global warming is, is real. And um, because I – somebody posted about that on – I did an interview with a guy who was saying – there were sort of localized heat sources and this that they want to take into account. So apparently this data was all massaged to take that into account. And there was still evidence of global warming, which, you know, it's not proof that it's, you know, anthropomorphic. It's not proof that it's permanent. It's not proof that it's escalating. But, uh, you know, that's information that I didn't have before that um, is, you know, worth people having. There's more information, more data is coming out all the time. And, you know, we have to make the best decisions that we can based on the data that's available. Uh, and if new data comes along, then, you know, we adjust our position. So I'm, I'm skeptical, but, you know, what does that mean? That just means that I have some reasons to be skeptical, but, you know, the data always trumps, uh, you know, data always trumps opinion. So, um, so, yeah, if you can send me in, any stuff on it, I think that would be great. For sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some research and uh, send you some uh, key, uh, key information that I think uh, will outline it better. I mean, one reason that I, I want to bring this up is because... Uh, um, institutions that uh, that we're uh, kind of against, such as the state and religion, I think they're uh, they're making a good use of these techniques uh, by basically putting people in a state of trance or, or altered consciousness uh, all the time. Uh, schools and uh, and churches and, and prayers, and they're basically uh, putting people in a highly receptive, highly suggestive, uh, suggestible state where uh, whatever propaganda is just going to sink in uh, that much faster. And I think... Uh, yeah, I've I certainly... Think sorry to interrupt, but I've certainly thought over the years off and on that um, the boredom that I experienced in church and in school was probably not entirely accidental, but was rather a way of having me become a daydreamer so that whatever was being communicated would sort of flow into the unconscious, so to speak, without necessarily as much of a gatekeeper. A boredom, I guess, is, uh, is, uh, is a way of, of bypassing some of the more rational skepticism that people have. And uh, yeah, so that's, uh, I, I, I'm not surprised by that at all. I think that's a very, very interesting observation. Okay, so basically my hope is that somehow, you know, people that are more uh, on the libertarian side and more in terms of... Uh, reason and uh, progress, uh, they can take advantage of these techniques in, in time and uh, I just, I just don't, don't want to be in a situation where we're kind of uh, have to discover the wheel whereas uh, the state and the church and all that, these people have been using it for, uh, for centuries. Even it might not be uh, explicit knowledge but they kind of stumble upon techniques that work and they're just using them to their advantage. And uh, whereas, uh, yeah, what's that old line? I uh, can't believe we would be the people who would bring a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> yeah. Touchables. yeah, if we have better tools, I mean, I think that but the danger of the tools is that we can then rely on the tools rather than the reason and the evidence. And I just want to keep pounding on the reason and evidence. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I, I think that's great. So yeah, if you can send me more information, I think uh, you've made your case and I'm certainly interested in, in hearing more about it. And if there's a faster way to do it, uh, you know, absolutely. I mean, I like to drive, not walk. So I think that's a great approach. Thank you. For sure. And uh, just a more of a personal note, I just wanted to, uh, to thank you for uh, some of your parenting, parenting uh, advice and uh, insight. Uh, my daughter is the same age as yours. And, uh, oh, how cool. Yeah, and uh, I'm ashamed to say that uh, up until a few months ago where I uh, kind of stumbled upon your work, I still had this 
believe that occasional spanking in really uh, rare circumstances is valid. And uh, right. I was really kind of relieved and happy to, through the stuff that you've put out, to uh, really completely put that theory uh, to rest. I mean, uh, that's something that's no longer uh, that I mean, is not even considered. And, that uh, is a know. beautiful thing to hear. Yeah, that yeah. is a beautiful thing to hear. I mean, I can't, I, and I can't tell you, look, I, I hope that you won't beat yourself up for doing that, which was culturally and uh, in many ways um, uh, praised, right? We, we can't know before we know, right? And I, th I think that's really important, right? So, uh, you know, people who teach their children about Jesus and God and so on, before they've encountered uh, uh, arguments that uh, they can't counter or whatever, uh, the, the, to me, the responsibility comes with the knowledge. I mean, one of the reasons that people avoid philosophy is it gives them choices that I really don't want to have, right? One of the reasons people avoid self-knowledge or therapy is it gives them choices that they don't want to have, right? So, I mean, you hear this all the time when you talk about, uh, oh, let's have a free society. Ah, oh, that's utopianism because there are bad people in the world. There always will be. Human nature is predatory. It's violent. It's, it's uh, right? It's the, uh, the matrix argument. Humanity is a cancer, right? And um, people have to define their own dysfunction or the dysfunction that they've suffered under as human nature, as a way of avoiding the fact that it was a choice on the part of people. And this is one of the reasons why irrational communities tend to stick so close together. Uh, I can have religious people on the show. I can have psychologists who disagree with my amateur theories on the show. I can have economists who disagree. I can have lots of people who disagree with me on the show. Uh, I think that's great. I have lots of people who disagree with me on the message board. I have lots of people who disagree with me around the world. I think that's wonderful. You know, I think humanity only benefits from a robust debate. And uh, whereas people who have more irrational beliefs, they kind of have to remain a little bit more isolated. And because they know that with uh, encountering um, strong arguments to the contrary creates a choice that ha is the beginning of a domino of cascading cause and effect that can kind of rip them out of the matrix. And so that is that is a real challenge. That is a real challenge. So uh, first of all, I, I want to just incredibly applaud you for your choice to refrain from, from spanking. I think that is a fantastic choice. Uh, and I think that is... I don't have to thank you because I'm sure that over time your kids will thank you in terms of whether they know it or not. Their behavior is, is going to change. Their IQ is going to increase. Their uh, aggression and their resistance is going to decrease and so on. So, But I thank you because that is... That is, you, you know, your daughter is going to grow up in a world that, that my daughter and I are going to have to live in. And that is one giant leap. You know, it's one small step for mankind, but it, it's one small step for you in a sense, but it's one giant leap for mankind. And so I, I really want to thank you for the choice that you've made to, to drop the aggression with your daughter. And I, you know, not that, that I have any power to forgive, but I hope that you will forgive yourself for what you did prior to having the knowledge because we cannot know before we know. And uh, I hope that you will uh, accept that uh, as, as a perspective and be gentle with yourself for uh, making mistakes before you knew they were mistakes. Uh, well, I mean, the real thanks goes to you, of course. But uh, in my way, I'm paying it forward in a sense that uh, my friend uh, and his wife are expecting right now. And I'm kind of uh, I'm doing some work with them. I'm uh, laying the groundwork for their, uh, their kid. And I've already uh, shown them your video on spanking. And uh, uh, I don't really want to directly send them to your stuff because uh, uh, it's not going to go over too well. Uh, they're going to find it too radical. But I'm... Uh, Listen, they're, they're busy enough getting ready for it. They don't need to reinvent their whole lives through philosophy exactly. when they're about to have a kid. So, I, I, yeah, pick and choose. Absolutely. Yeah, for time, sure. For sure. I'm, 
I'm just uh, throwing the seeds out there and I'm kind of uh, showing them that there's uh, different ways so they don't make you know the same mistake that I did uh, initially at least. And uh, and how's your wife with all of this? Uh, she's been pretty receptive. I mean, uh, she 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 understood it on a deeper level the same way I did. I mean, it's not something. It's something that I was uncomfortable with. I, I didn't. It didn't sit well with me. And usually, it's it's been uh, it's been an indication for me that uh, that I need to change course. And it uh, really helped because I, I mean I've done I've done this uh, 180 degree turnaround so many times in my life. You know, pretty much any issue you can think of. You know, I uh, I lived in Israel, and I was about to go into the army, and I was all pro army, and I had to make a 180 degree and become against the army, against war. And then uh, there was the whole big religious pressure. Obviously, in Israel, is a state and the religion are the same over there. So there was and the other examples in my life where I had to do this. Uh, and if I I found that whenever I went with this gut feeling that something is wrong, that this you know this is not uh, this is not a good way to do things. Usually, I was right. And I mean, my wife it was a very easy transition because. As soon as just I just started talking about these things and uh, pointed out that uh, it really you know it changes the brain and it's uh, it's a horrible thing and uh, so on and so on. She really she understood that and uh, we have no problem, no disagreement on this issue. Wow! Wow! Fantastic! Um, yeah, it's it, people. It's it's a weird. It's counterintuitive. It is it is counterintuitive. And I'll just give you sort of a brief uh, example that um, I was I went uh, grocery shopping with Isabella today because you know we just out of everything, and she wanted a chocolate egg. You know the little Kinder eggs that have the the surprise. In them. Surprise, your toy sucks. But yeah, um, uh, she wanted to open the egg, and I said fine. And she wanted to take one bite of the egg and I said fine and then she wanted to take another bite of the egg and I said no because you know you can maybe have a little bit after lunch after you go pee or whatever but uh, but no and she didn't you know she kept asking and I just said no uh, I said I'm sorry it's you know you're going to fill up on chocolate you won't eat your lunch you need to eat some vegetables so you get big and strong uh, this is a treat and, and I explained it to her and so on and she didn't you know she, she just held the egg in her hand she played with it uh, she crumbled it uh, into a cup she just you know she, she but she did not have another bite uh, it, it's completely counterintuitive that the less pressure and the more respect that you apply to children, um, the uh, the more they will listen. Uh, they they they, sh- they 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 stop listening when you're uh, when you escalate, and it's the lightest touch that you need. She listens, you know. Um, we you know we had some friends, and over we were all running. She began running towards uh, you know the break in the sidewalk where the cars come out of a parking lot and I said Isabella please stop and she stopped right away uh, she listens really well because I try to say yes as much as possible and she is uh, I mean I hate to say obedient because I wouldn't call my wife obedient but she is uh, she's certainly respectful of the limits that I place and uh, that is something that I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad happened because that was my prediction and that was the goal of course and uh, you know I can empirically confirm a a hundred percent case of one that if you are uh, peaceful and gentle and respectful uh, of your children and recognize that they have as much to teach you as unbroken whole souls as you have to teach them if not more then uh, they will listen and they will uh, respect what you do and you will have a much easier and more fun time of being a parent because it won't be will versus will and uh, I think that that will only, you know, so people say, uh, well, will you teach your child self-defense? Well, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Self-respect is self-defense because self-respect keeps you out of those situations where self-defense ever gets necessary. So, 
so thank you and and you know uh, you know if i could carry you uh, uh, on a uh, on my shoulders uh, through a ticker tape parade for what you're doing i would and uh, i really appreciate that that stand that you've taken and you know thank your wife again for me because that means that's one other potential friend my daughter might have when she gets older and i appreciate that all right Stefan. thanks for your for right. your uh, for your great work you're welcome Take care. you're welcome Take care. Well, we have come to an end of another fine Sunday show. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody, so much for all of the great questions and the great comments. Oh, sorry, one so okay. Okay, Jocelyn, just for posting this, if you have a moment. I have been looking for a response to an issue a friend of mine has. His issue is that he thinks that the idea that custom entitlements won't necessarily lead to civil unrest, at least in the kind that you have described. He cited some examples where farming subsidies were cut and yet farmers didn't park their tractors in the street. He therefore thinks that you are somewhat of a doomer. Uh, okay, I mean, I would be happy to look at those examples. Um, I, would, uh, I would guess, this would be my guess. My guess would be that farming subsidies were cut, but I would imagine also that at the same time there was something else that was done, like protectionism. Uh, tariffs were raised against farm goods. Uh, there would be some some bribe, some reason why, or maybe um, subsidies were increased for uh, fertilizer, or maybe land tax was lowered, or something. There would probably have been a quid pro quo that kept people off the streets. I could be wrong, but please, if your friend wants to send in some examples, host at freedomainradio.com. I would be happy to look at them. It certainly is not the case that every cut breeds riots. I mean, remember, Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers, and they didn't... Uh, put grenades in their air traffic control equipment. Uh, it's it's not the case. It, it will be, I think, uh, if there's sympathy for the people who are being cut, then there will be uh, strikes and riots. If there's not sympathy uh, for them, then there won't be. And so that would be that would be my guess. Um, and if... I know here in, in Ontario, the farmers... And people have a, a, quite a, a lack of patience with the farmers because everything here is crazy expensive because we've got this socialized farm system where everyone's part of a marketing board and government controlled and they have to sell a certain amount and they get paid a fixed amount and that's just horrible and the licenses for being a farmer it's like taxi cab licenses are crazy expensive so we pay way more for food than we should given we're such an agricultural province in Ontario but um, it is uh, it's wretched so people have a little less sympathy for farmers than they used to and so um, and also of course when the farmers do gum up the traffic for the sake of their state subsidies. People are losing patience with the state. I mean, it's a beautiful thing that's happening. Uh, I think it was a, a 70 or 80% of Americans do not believe that the, the federal government is going to do the right thing. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, of course, the knee-jerk reaction is they're still going to go back to the government to ask for this, that, and the other, or control this, that, and the other, and regulate this, that, and the other. But still, you know, we're starting to get to that place where, you know, it's a tipping point, right? 90% of, patients spank, uh, of parents spank their kids, but 80 to 90% of them don't want to. Uh, that's a tipping point, right? hundred years ago, they probably all thought it was the best thing ever. So, um, Okay, one more. Will there be a post-status crisis like there was a post-communist crisis in Eastern Europe? Is there a way to avoid this? Are there going to be massive DRO frauds in the first years of anarchy, just like there were massive Ponzi schemes in the first years of communism? Um, well, no, listen, it's not. Uh, there's not going to be a post-status crisis. Um, how can I put this? Was there a post-slavery crisis? Not really. I mean, obviously it wasn't great, um, but um, when people let go of violence, it's because they've been raised peacefully, right? I mean, communism didn't, didn't end because people were raised rationally and peacefully and grew up without bomb-in-the-brain damage from child abuse. 
right? Communism ended because it economically collapsed. They did not grant a shred of self-knowledge to anybody in Eastern Europe or Russia or anything like that. And, uh, yeah, as somebody's pointed out, post-socialist crises all happened because the government was still all there just doing its thing, right? I mean, Russia did not uh, become – what is it? There's a writer who recently wrote a short novel about Russia. One quote was, there are no love stories in Russia. There are no politics stories in Russia. There aren't even any corruption stories in Russia. There are only crime stories in Russia. And so with peaceful parenting, the state is going to fade away because there's going to be much less violence, much less, much less or no addictions or, or dysfunctional behaviors or children born out of wedlock. There'll be almost no abortion demands. There'll be, you know, and so people, there'll be like no need for the police. They'll become obsolete. And so that kind of, and so the people won't want to go out defrauding others and people won't be susceptible to, to fraud because they'll be raised with the self-defense of self-respect. So no, it's not, there is not going to be a wrenching change to freedom. Freedom is something that we grow patiently and slowly. You know, you, you pull on a rose, you don't make it taller, you just break it. You have to water it and you have to give it its nutrition and it grows on its own. And that's the way that the future will grow peacefully, patiently, and it's not going to be universal. It's going to be a tipping point. And that is the way that things are going to happen. And it's going to happen because people intervene in situations of child abuse. It's going to happen because people stop spanking like this noble caller. It's going to happen because children grow up whole and undamaged and the state is an effect of child abuse and when you get rid of child abuse we will get rid of the reason the justification for the state because the violence will be visible and whenever violence is visible it is condemned it is the keeping of violence invisible that is the only way it can survive so people will see it when they're not trained when people are trained to avoid the aggression in their family do you think they're going to be able to see the aggression in the state if people aren't allowed to sit down and say I felt terrified and intimidated by my father when I was a child. Do you think they'll ever be able to, to emotionally process that taxation is forced? No, you start with that which is closer and more personal before you deal with that which is abstract and impersonal. You deal with the personal before the political. You deal with the intimate before the institutional. That is the only way to do it. And somebody has written Harrison Bergeron. The movie is available on YouTube. You can do a search for it there. So thank you everybody again so much. Support, support, support this philosophy conversation. I was really quite stunned to feel that we're, you know, close up to half of what is going on over there at the Khan Academy. And uh, we're just doing raw ass, <laughs> mess your matrix up philosophy here. So thank you everybody so much for your support. FDRURL.com forward slash donate. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Have a, a wonderful, wonderful week. All the best.